peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan, once again with another episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan Podcast. Today we're going to be speaking about the technology being used to explore and colonize, to tame the frontiers of these um, hollow earth and secret lands, including Antarctica, including continents that are beyond the disclosed or, or white world. Um, geography that is allowed to be taught in you know academia, um, the true continents of this greater Earth uh, map model that we have, and I believe that you know the, 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 that is the ultimate um, manifest destiny of the human species when it comes to this next century is the disclosure and the um, I guess you call it the um, public awakening to and awareness of such you know lost continents such unexplored realms such as the frontier worlds um, the end of the 20th century was and I mean literally the last uh, half of the uh, 20th century was one of um, explorative nihilism. I believe that is the best way to, um, you know, coin it and, and describe it. Was There was nothing new to explore, and that frontiers were becoming um, in near extinct as concepts. And that uh, mankind had done literally everything there was to do when it came to mapping or exploring or discovering uh, potential, you know, col- or continents and, and landscapes, islands, um, etc. This is the idea of the creation of the, the map that we know today. Uh, specifically from air cartography and, you know, with the invention of the airplane, with the invention of air travel, with the invention of satellites, especially with the invention of satellites, which is why I said the last half of the 20th, 20th century, because with the invention of space, space age and with satellites, the believability, the suspension of disbelief in the public 
to the government's claims of providing accurate information about the world, um, you know, was was absolutely cemented. It was the nail in the coffin when it came to um, critical thinking or independent, um, you know, independent speculation or theories or anything like that. The system at that point, which the system was specifically controlled by covert clandestine military industrial complex military intelligence operated and ran uh, Pentagon eyes only levels of technology now I'm not even going to get into the science fiction parts yet this is all satellites this is just exactly space travel and you know conventional space travel specifically this is where the technocracy begins to to exist inside the uh, Rockefeller Corporation away from the industrialists was no more was man just marginalized and completely enslaved by the whims of those who controlled the factories, those who controlled praxis um, and materials and logistics, etc. The uh, actual, you know, hardware that kept America existent, and which was... I guess you call it like finalized in the World War II era. This idea that of man, you know America's true production capabilities being co-opted by the government, specifically being co-opted by the military, in the name of national defense. Now it was technology, and that being co-opted and 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 used specifically for national defense. And this is where a big shift happens in the world of aviation. Because regardless of satellites, which is what is the uh, white world uh, motivation for creating a top secret, and I mean above top secret, skunk works level uh, uh, a type of classification of materials and hardware and technology and research, the compartmentalizing of engineers, the compartmentalizing of pilots and operators, uh, ground... Uh, support and uh, you know even even the idea of base locations becoming uh, above top secret like Area 51 and things like that. This phenomenon uh, occurs specifically due to the space race or what we would call the espionage space race, um, satellite race, the technology race. Uh, if you want to keep zooming out from it, you know, the 30,000 foot view is, is the technology race beyond the arms race. So yeah, like, you know, this, this continued evolution of arms and technology being synonymous with weapons. Technology is a weapon. Technology as a concept is the creation of weaponry or the management of weaponry or the distribution of weaponry, the perfection of weaponry. Or, uh, you know, you see what I'm saying? That, that, that's, that is actually what people mean when they talk about technology. And so anything that researches or develops technology is part of the military-industrial complex by its very nature and design, including, say, for example, modern computer engineers and software engineers, people who make AI, people who operate supercomputers. I've gone on record speaking before about how the supercomputer programs were began and still exist completely for the management and operation of top secret military programs, which people just simply are not trusted with at all. They are all under the order and operation of supercomputers and AI. Uh, you know, it's not even a part or matter of human control anymore. They've given it literally to a machine that can be trusted. 
because it's it is not human. Exactly, <laughs> it has no human weaknesses. Um, and the, this is how these things have begun and, and where they're going. Which is why they can keep things like the Hollow Earth secret. They can keep what's truly in Antarctica secret. They can keep what's truly in the South Pacific secret. They can keep truly the true lost continents and, and ways and access points and things like that. They can keep the operations completely secret. As well as access them without any undue stress or hardship making it an extremely efficient secret to keep, specifically because they are the only ones that that possess technology <laughs> that can both physically go there uh, and and survive as well. You know, like once they this is all you know well within their their capabilities uh, to to start this secret colonization. The one thing that they lack is specifically is manpower, which you see that's a factor also that keeps the secret very tightly, you know, like uh, knit the communities and things because one exactly they don't have very many people that they would even consider sending, and the ones they do consider sending, uh, in many cases, it's a one way ticket because they have you know so few people actually physically presently there or, or you know, possessing the clearance, etc. And the easiest way to keep a secret from amongst them is to keep them in a multinational type effort, um, specifically amongst cultures where secrecy and authority, etc. are much, much higher uh, prized than, say, for example, the West Americans or people from the UK. And even though for the last you know, beginning of the efforts, the root of the efforts, and still the backbone and the elite are from these Western countries ever more uh, increasingly in number, and, and I mean in greatly increasingly in number. Um, you see companies or explorers made up of the Chinese um, PLA and, and CCP um, authorities. You see people from um, so the previous Soviet Union, now Russia, and, and, and they do basically the fundamentals, they, they, they do absolutely all the, the outpost, uh, manning, basic fuel transportation, uh, security patrol, um, and so you see the, the logic behind it actually is pretty efficient, because, these people do not exist in societies and communities to begin with that allows communication about state secrecy uh, because they live in totalitarian military junta states like the communist China or North Korea. Uh, and even if they were able to tell people, they speak a language which very few people in the West speak. So... Uh, it, exactly. The secret itself is not the problem. The, the issue is the keeping the uh, technology um, in this weird fugue state where it's always deemed as seemingly unperformed or impossible, but the the it's an open secret. <laughs> it is an absolute open secret. And the only thing is, people just do not want to connect the dots. 
and they have created not a it's just a very obscure thing to to research you know top secret aviation uh canceled black military project cuz that's the that's the kind of thing you have to use a lot of um a lot of your own intuition and a lot of your own uh investigative skill because it's not going to be told to you. These are military secrets. <laughs> these are, these are not published in newspapers because people would get murdered. And that's a good place to start. Is there, has anyone ever been murdered investigating this? Cause that's probably right. You know what I'm saying? That's probably, they're probably onto something. And that's how, um, you get like, you know, your, your, octopus type theories where you start seeing people, you know, killed in motel rooms and stuff. Um, but yeah, like the aviation world is, is absolutely kept so secret because it's like, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's, um, officially the, uh, the common American does have the right to know. Because the common American is paying for it because it's taxpayer dollars. It's, exactly, it's publicly funded. And so it's like keeping a national park secret, which they also do. These people are sons of bitches. They keep everything that we make that's cool secret. <laughs> they keep everything that's cool secret. And it makes very little sense. Although you can easily find out what's going on if you just like ask enough questions and watch enough YouTube videos. It's... And that's not even an overstatement. That's absolutely the case. Like, you just watch enough aviation videos and you're like, son of a bitch, they have nuclear-powered planes and they've had them since the 60s because why the fuck else would they make so many prototypes for nuclear-powered planes from the 60s? Which is going to be a piece of evidence I'm going to use to kind of um, further explain, or at least, you know, I, you know, if you're a long-time listener, that I like using third-party sources and stuff to kind of uh, verify a lot of this information. Um... So yeah, the technology is there. The technology I'm speaking about is not science fiction. It is not like uh, breaking any laws of physics. It is not um, even even untheorized or unthought about uh, versions of technology. Like I'm not going to be speaking in this episode about you know spaceships or interplanetary you know like uh, routes controlled by lasers that power you know solar sailed. Um, uh, freighters, you know, across the, the the distance between the Earth and Mars. I'm not speaking about that level of shit, uh, but that, that that also exists too. It's also not technologically, uh, you know, science fiction. It's it's science fact. Um, but I'm going to be speaking about the aircraft, the atmos, the in atmosphere, surface, uh, air to surface. Uh, you know, air system that operates, the logistic system that operates, that is facilitating the colonization of both Hollow Earth and um, Antarctica and these other lands, as well as serving to protect us from perceived threats. Because the 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 issue there is, I'm going to try to be very objective about it, but you know, my own personal experiences with it. Uh, recovering memories of that, as well as my own personal beliefs regarding pacifism and war itself. But I also understand that this is literally the exploration and, co- and and taming of a wild west, and it should be thought of that. This is the wild west with airplanes. This is the wild west with um, jets and and bombs and missiles and you know um, 
Gatling guns and shit like that. This is, um, imagine if you were the, um, taming of, you know, the Native American tribes with napalm. It's literally at that level, but at the same time, if you know your history, the Indians, or the Native Americans, the Aboriginals, they were, they were using Western technology like the horse and the rifle and things equally well, so they would then also have acquired their aviation, you know, because people evolve, you know, at the same time, basically, get their equal nations, which is what we're having now. We're actually seeing that because we're not fighting technologically unadvanced people. It's that's where the metaphor kind of ends. It's just that we're fighting a hostile land in a place where we don't have authority in um, situation where we're colonizing, but there's like a huge distance between culturally the, the center of our world, which is what we have here, which is still mostly unpopulated. This is just the root, right? Where the world is extending out of the, the trunk where the limbs are extending out of. And as we extend further and further into these lands, uh, the irony is, is that not only are, is it kept secret from the real world, us, but the people who are sent over there, the, the people who are sent through their various origins and backgrounds being part of the, the secret space program, um, or the, uh, you know, federal agencies that make up the world and various different uh, nations that cooperate through, you know, administers and, and embassies and things like that. Um, think Noah, think like the Russian version of Noah. They're like, you know, meteorological people, they're ge geologists, they're, you know, military scientists, because they do exist. People won't realize that, like in the army, there are like entomologists and zoologists and like, you know, he's like a geologist, but you could be a geologist for the army. And you're like, what? You're like, yeah, you're like a U.S. Army geologist. And you're like, the fuck? Exactly. That, that exists because of this shit. <laughs> that exists specifically because... Who do you think is going? <laughs> exactly. These weird specialties. Like, you study clouds for the Navy? And you're like, what? <laughs> I went to boot camp with a guy who was going to do that. Exactly. Like, it's this weird uh, hyper-specialization in science that the military does. And it's kind of like, when you when you hear it, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense, because who the fuck else would be doing that? Like, it, exactly. That's not like a civilian thing. And that's what I'm saying. They keep our society uninvolved with these higher applications of science, uh, both theory and into the... But it's not theory. It's all about the real world. It's like, you know, people th think science is completely abstract and it can't affect the world. We're talking science like uh, understanding how hydroponics works or understanding horticulture to the point that you are literally collecting, like, plant seeds and DNA for further cult, like, like, it's this weird, earth, like, you know, earth changing in the long run type, uh, focus, but in, in most of the real society, we have been all basically brainwashed and trained to think that science has no real, or application, or that science is very weirdly, um, um, just like the realm of an extremely privileged, uh, gatekeeping sect, and and I'm the first to understand that they are teaching two different things. One, they teach to the public, which is the wrong thing, and then they themselves believe the right thing, and that is the uh, 
absolute fact that it, once you get to a certain point that they literally will tell people that everything they've been taught was wrong and they need to relearn everything the right way. That has absolutely been proven and verified by other whistleblowers. Uh, man, I wish I had that video pulled up right now for my notes, but uh, maybe I'll edit it in um, after this broadcast is over. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'll definitely try to post it up once I find it in my files. I remember I downloaded it the other day. Yeah, that's absolutely the case where people are like, listen, I know we taught you for like 12 years that, the, say, for example, the world only had seven or nine continents. Uh, it's actually got like 15 continents and, you know, they're all bigger. The other ones are bigger than the ones that we know about, including Asia. And you're like, you fucking serious? And you're like, yeah, you got to learn like a lot more than you thought you knew. You thought you knew everything, but you got to learn literally like eight more years of bullshit. And it's like, what? Yeah. As I said about the whole, um, thing with the the kaiju with the real life kaiju and titans is that zoologists and biologists at a certain level think they have mastered and learned literally everything there is to know about life that is not the case that is not the case at all that is they learn literally maybe about five percent of real zoology real biology biology uh, including things like the reality of abiogenesis meaning life coming from inorganic matter meaning rocks and shit can be alive like, it's it's this weird, like, exactly, like, they only teach you what it takes for you to be satisfied at a civilian level, and people at some point have realized that in, in, in our society, that, that it's just a title, and so they don't really seek any answers or truth. People don't learn for the reasons they need, to, they should or, or need to learn for, which is, uh about, you know, like a need to master a subject. They just learn enough to, um, you know, get degrees in shit or, or pass tests. And it's like uh, very evident that it's like a bunch of parrots teaching each other to talk. They don't really know what they're saying, but it's just parrots literally teaching each other to talk. It's And then they, then they kind of turn around. They say they know, but they don't have any knowledge or meaning of the information that they're, re- like, repeating. It's like a bunch of parrots teaching other parrots. And you realize that. Like, it's just this, like, like yeah, uh, mindset. And it's very far from the truth. The government, the military, the top secret programs who gatekeep the secret societies, etc., their entire point is established to keep this knowledge secret. People have died for it. They have killed for it. They have gone to war for it. They have burned books. They have burned libraries. They have burned museums. They have burned people. <laughs> for for they Whatever you can name, they burned it. Horses, they burned. <laughs> whatever you want. They burned. They have burned one of those things to keep the secret, which is... Uh, how they've structured this society that we live in and this this uh, original motherland state, which is, you know, just like when the Soviet Union used to scrub people out of photographs because they went against the narrative. It's, it's, it's a human instinct to be like, well, that didn't fucking ever exist and, like, just never talked about it again. So they just, over time, through maybe even a painful incursion, like, say, for example, the 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 real like invasions of 
our world by these other countries, these other continents, these other peoples, these other species, these other tribes of things. Uh, exactly like um, the 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 story of the Sea Peoples, for example. That can start. I learned recently, for example, that there was you know just for an example about how why things need to be kept secret and the shit that can happen that can scar and traumatize society from its very roots. Pygmies used to have like a whole like country basically to their own and they were eaten by cranes. There was a war between pygmies and cranes and cranes ate them like they killed them and then pygmies had to involve them like you know integrate into our society. You know this is back in like the first days of man and that man had to like rescue them the survivors because they were being eaten by fucking birds. And we were bigger, and we could fight the birds off. And then that's why we got midgets and dwarves and shit. That that's exactly. It, it, you ever wonder, like, we ever wonder where they come from? It's because we integrated as a society because they were being eaten by birds, and they asked for help, and we helped them. And it was this weird, like, like situation. But it happened back when people were just like, you know, um, cavemen and stuff, like the earliest days of man, like in the savannas and stuff. And it just was this weird uh, situation where that explains how, uh, you know, it doesn't explain the situation, but it explains how there are situations that people forget because it's not, like, you know, accurate. But they don't because they tell it in legends that when you humble yourself, you can, like, it's like academic humility. When you, when you humble yourself, it's not preposterous. It becomes this extremely meaningful and poignant part of human development. Where they're not keeping the secret simply to be like, uh, you know, you don't, you don't deserve it because you you're like a smelly peasant. They, you know, they want to keep it secret because there's probably something significant and meaningful in the secret itself. Specifically, like, uh, if people knew about the cyclical apocalypse, they'd go, they'd get very depressed. And maybe uh, every once in a while there is an invasion from one of these continents onto our continent, you know, and then there's not a lot we can do because they're technologically superior or they were technologically superior, but that explains why there's an arms race because, you know, like the people know that there's going to be a war. Maybe that's even why we're exploring these areas, fortifying them. Maybe that there is this, uh, maybe we have better maps even than I'm aware of, uh, but in things like that. But I know for a fact that there is exploration, that there is this colonization and that it's both hollow earth through numerous locations on the uh, the map, or uh, the exactly, I want to keep saying the the globe, but like the meaningful uh, point of this is that we don't even know the actual true shape of the plane we're on, and physically or metaphysically, it's it's leaning more to like a Vedic plane of like uh, different layered sphere or layered uh, rings. And that they kind of like conically go up to ever more states of higher elevated uh, closeness or nearness with with uh, uh, these divine astral beings. Exactly. So like, they not only all exist at one time, but they are ladder steps to one another. And you have to exactly get, like they're 
they're intentionally created as bridges specifically towards this destination dimension. And that's why you get so many multidimensional travelers. Exactly. That's just weird um, concepts and ideas that they could easily explain why there's just so much work and effort put to seeking these things out, searching for these things. Exactly. Like there's this, not only an instinct to do so, uh, but, but, it seems to be literally the the overall mission of every single intelligent species is to um, seek out these portals and gateways in which to get to higher dimensions, literally and physically, like literally to to search out and to find like literal gateways, literal portals that can travel between here and even more elevated realms. It's this uh, issue with. Uh, not for land, it's not for for resources, it's not for um, being the first or, or anything like that. It is absolutely a case of... Uh, hold on, rain is coming in through my open window right there. It's raining outside, it's actually pretty nice. It's a late September uh, shower. The point I was trying to make though, it's not for anything physical, it's not for anything like power or it's not for anything like a, like a special resource or a mineral although those abound those do abound we live in an age of post-scarcity not because of any technological advancement but because we have actually verified the fact that we have so many resources that the, the actual concept of shortage or drought of any specific one is absurd, and we have such an overabundance of laborers and populations that any kind of national cooperation would would quickly solve any local or regional um, scarcity issue. That is absolutely just part of this uh, economic game that they have. The the peasantry, the petty. Uh, viceroys and thralls and servants that controlled their less, you know, less uh, romantic-sized uh, territories. And they keep literally the majority of the third world and the second world nations obsessed with things like fuel and with things like power or climate change and things like that because this is how they facilitate the secret. They, the first world countries never exist truly in a state of desperation. Why would they? They know for a fact that they have adequate land, resources, uh, for, for not only the existing populations, but 10, 20 times the amount of the existing populations of the world. It's not even a question of like, the uh, the the concept of scarcity or method uh, what is it called method uh method methusily method uh hold on a second hold on one second this is gonna bug me if I don't get it Methuselah Meth Methuselahan Methuselahan <laughs> how do I pronounce that because I don't look at the pronunciation Methuselahan because it's Methuselah. Uh, this idea of Methuselahan uh, crisis of too many people living too long and being too much of a drain on the resources. 
that is something that was literally created by like the British monarchy and shit, which is something they learned from like the Egyptians, which is something that's in the Old Testament. When, like, the pharaoh's like, oh, we ran out of food. I don't know what to tell you. It didn't rain. There was no more, like, grain outside because, you know, you guys just ate it all. It's all your fault. And then, they like, one of the leaders, I think it was Aaron, like, went up to the pyramid and was all like, there's a shitload of grain in one of these fucking pyramids. And, like, the storage places. It wasn't a pyramid. I, I don't know what it was in real life. Some kind of structure. Probably a storage, like, exact granary. And it was just like, listen, you got enough food here to feed everyone. You just keep it away from us because this is how you exert power over your slaves. You know, like, oh, you ate all your bread. You don't get any more bread. You got to, you know, you got to play our game and, and be slaves or else we won't give you it because, you know, it's your fault. And, and Moses was like, this is bullshit. You have all this grain just sitting there and you keep it because it's this fake reality it's a simulated crisis and that the pharaohs never need to go without and they know that their people really aren't in trouble like they know their kingdom isn't poor so they're they're not trying to find solutions because they're the cause of the problem and i know if they just stopped the exactly they know the ruling class knows absolutely the elite know that if they just stopped what they were doing and did the right thing for even one year that everything would just fix itself. Exactly. But then they would be at ground zero again when it comes to their uh, their literal carrot and stick type economy, which is, you know, they they don't care about the fulfillment of people. Because it's, it's just they want them to comply. It's this weird obedience thing. But I get off the point. The issue, though, is that the colonization is not about... Uh, necessity. They're not looking for places to go if there's an emergency. I know for a fact there's evidence that the cataclysm that occurred that eventually destroyed the the what we would know as the Tartarian Empire or even a societies uh, before that, like the Orion Draco, uh, were both hostile actions in in this uh, alternative cosmic warfare model that they were fighting the Ashtar High Command had actually ordered that, like actually performed those cyclical apocalypses uh, given the fact that they even directed our orbit into the path of Tiamat and Nibiru and they have kept that as basically a safeguard they can easily change that and have assured through the Jupiter Accord that they will no longer um, perform that. They will no longer uh, keep the cyclical apocalypse clock running, basically, and in the world every 6,000 years or every 9,000 years. Uh, you know, basically just starting over uh, and keeping mankind in check because spiritually we weren't ready to become a spacefaring race. Now that we've passed that, the Jupiter Accord has been signed, Artemis Treaty is being signed, etc. This isn't about warfare. This isn't about uh, finding, you know, uh, other nations, like, we gotta get to the lands before China gets to the lands, we're all working together to, to explore these areas, we're all working together to catalog, and it's more of a scientific thing at this point. Um, the military aspect of it, though, does exist, there are several intelligent species that do exist down there, and before this, 
specifically during my um, tenure 10 and 20 years ago. The Mayan Aztec, for example, were extremely hostile. We were in an open state of warfare with them, but the distances we were speaking about and the fact that we would cease kind of pushing into the hollow earth uh, as they were rising up and we were meeting them more near the surface than the actual depths of which they were coming from. But they, the ranges extended, not in their homeland, but you know we're talking about fighting over a border which both nations uh, are thousands of miles apart. We're talking deep in the Amazon. We're talking deep within jungle ranges. We're talking uh, you know, artifact which are which are growing on cities, which are the portals and the uh, entrance gates that they're using. They were using the city, trying to start the city's um, the colonization effort for the surface to 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 clear out uh, the cities as well. Start a uh, reclamation effort for a network of Pentagon. Um, shaped structures that would basically be known as the snake network. They they had started this both in the hollow earth and it would allow a massive amount of their population. Um, now when I say that they were in a state of hostility or open warfare, they were still human. And so their population being women, children, their civilians, their population. And so it's not like we're being invaded by you know, it, this one of the things where it's, I'm not trying to get emotional, but I am very emotional when it comes to the idea of this Mayan Aztec warfare because it really was a a extremely brutal engagement that between humans, between human beings, and the the, the phrase "ants fight ants to the death." Uh, you know that that's absolutely the case, and while I no, we do gauge in warfare with other species, you know, know that for a fact, that the concept of engaging even in a warfare against other hostile tribes, other human beings, that's what really makes it very real. Like, I know the the saying is very cliche, but it it's very, um... Yeah, you know, it kind of kind of makes you break out in a cold sweat when you think about the the real implications of what was going on and using this technology specifically for that. So this is why we're not going to be speaking about specific military engagements or, or applications, but I will be speaking about this as because it's military technology. It is is absolutely the exploration is not just scientists and diplomats and uh, you know peace peace people like peace corps people. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's nothing shy of like the old galleon days of, of exploration, which is people very far away from home. Usually the ships provided for by royals, by navies, by these larger companies, these larger sovereigns. And the people were on a mission they were they were there for the collective good not only of humanity but in many ways um, the difference being the the concept of regional powers regional supremacies trade route wars and things like that where the thing that's different between this and you know 400 years ago is that if you encountered spanish people you're not going to open fire on them because they are on your side. You know, everyone is working together. 
the thing is though the the natives still would kill us on sight that's still a thing <laughs> you know exactly like as an as an american you wouldn't see another nation and and then engage in warfare but and there's no piracy uh but there are hostile natives there is hostile flora and fauna there are hostile uh intelligent species that are humanoid but not human reptilians um the adamic people which that's what's part of what I was about the zoology biology um uh, uh, hidden knowledge is that they're silicon based life forms but they are literally the first days of men the first age of men and their literal flesh appears to be wood it appears like wood, and it feels like wood. It's this weird experience, actually, seeing and, and, and witnessing an Adamic man. Uh, they're giants. They appear to be stone, but they're... It's a stone that feels like wood, and it's the silicon um, organic substrate. It's, they are the first in iterations made by the intelligent people, literally out of the minerals themselves of the earth and it literally created a talking rock man um they exist and they are not always um is it they are they are sometimes very hostile depending on the site's sacredness to them depending on they're all individual they're circumstantial they do run on different kingdoms and tribes they have technology, they have flying ships, they have weaponry, uh, they have uh, metal forgery, things like that. They are also psychic. Uh, I think the concept of the native being primitive in this this giant metaphor I'm trying to like weave of the modern day exploration, it's not like we're meeting people who have never seen steel and they don't know of like anything like money or anything. No, we're dealing with literally the remnants and survivors of the old world. We are dealing with species that may be rare, may be on the decline, may be endangered and facing extinction in the terms of like shapeshifters, in the terms of, um, you know, the Adamic. Uh, societies in terms of the native Orion Draco populations, which literally were the reasons and targets for the Astra High Command when they ventured into the Hollow Earth and were using um, humanity to assist them in, in our fight, in their fight, really against them. So we were, you know, being urged and then kind of like uh, f- not forced, but heavily encouraged to. Uh, you know, speed up our development of these technologies, of these weapons, and also to speed up our, you know, involvement, our investment, and our engagement in both manpower and, uh, you know, astral realm, remote viewing, um, Stargate level, like, you know, I mean, like, um, uh, Montauk Island level um, involvement with these efforts you know, to actually start really involving and contributing ourselves, not only as masters of our domain, but but to be, um, you know, at least involved or, or beginning to become 
I guess you'll call it, uh, true masters of, of a, a truer domain. Not only just masters of our domain, but a, a real master of the true domain. Now, uh, of course, they frown upon and highly discourage the the overt and hostile keeping of secrets. But they uh, also are the ones keeping the grand secrets. So to the, it's a very ironic thing where they think that it's strange that we're keeping the secret of the hollow earth and the Orion Draco beneath, you know, our cities and our and, and our world and these different lands like Antarctica and that we live like we do, self-governing the way we do, but they also keep, they also enforce and, and wish to keep the secret of their existence on Earth uh, because disclosure is their right to, to begin and to, it's not the, our government's right to say that they exist it's their right to s- proclaim their existence it's this ironic thing that the Astro High Command are insistent on and it's the, exactly you know, so I won't be talking about um, a lot of like the extraterrestrial involvement in there, although they do exist, which is also why we need the things that we are going to be speaking about: the airframes, the platforms, the bombers, the fighters, the interceptors, the military response vehicles, the uh, logistical chain, basically that exists. And, um, you know, as well as the things like the surveillance equipment, the electronic uh, warfare element, um, satellites, reconnaissance, etc. Spy planes, all of that is going to kind of be walked through um, piece by piece. To actually include, like, the alien technology. I mean, I I will include the TR-3B, I will include the things like that, the DART. Um, but to include things like uh, Ashtar ships and their classification or uh, Orion Draco ships and their fleet, that is a conversation for another day. This is specifically human technology. This is specifically made by the by the Solar Warden, Earth Alliance, Blue Sphere Alliance, uh, you know, humans, basically. Not, not off-world and not, not Waffen. Although... Like I said, not often technology is so different at this point from standard human military technology, as well as their tactics, that it just seems to be the the only thing similar at this point is the fact that we're both human beings. But at this, but if you looked at the technology, you would you would easily see that one is much more closely. Um, influenced by much more powerful influenced by for example uh, reptilian Orion Draco engineering and they use materials that are found off world much more commonly than say for example technology even though it may be extremely advanced technology by our standards uh, from earth and I mean for example atomic powered or nuclear powered uh, aircraft Nuclear-powered aircraft are very common in the black world of this hollow earth frontier, uh, you know, exploration force. Very common. In the civilian world, that's a science fiction. That is absolutely not represented 
by any conventional military or even civilian designer or inventor. It's it wouldn't even be considered by someone like Elon Musk or Richard Branson, the quote unquote rogue adventurer inventors, the technologists from any country, India, China, Australia, Britain, Russia, none of them would publicly work on or build any prototypes for a nuclear-powered aircraft in 2020. It's a taboo. It's not even a taboo. It's just something that is not considered. But in the 50s, that was what everyone was racing to build were atomic-powered aircraft that could fly forever, specifically for nuclear warfare, specifically for long-range nuclear warfare, specifically for hypersonic long-range nuclear warfare. And you see that it's not science fiction, it's just our society is not very scientific. And this is where I was saying earlier about the idea of exotic materials versus domestic materials that are like import import versus domestic where it's import because it's black goo that works you know on a quantum level uh, it's like this magnetic ferious substance that we've collected in the ships themselves from the Orion Draco fleets left over that we've recovered in the West and that we use to kind of create um, the, the cloaking technology that we use. That is import because we don't make that. We actually, uh, we can make it, but we're still learning how to. It's that advanced. And that's absolutely uh, Orion Draco originated technology. Uh, the... Uh, Domestic technology would be like these cold fusion nuclear reactors. These cold fusion nuclear reactors are absolutely created by man. These were modern inventions created by, I believe it was a Soviet scientist at the time, um, a room-temperatured uh, nuclear reactor that w could be scaled down to a transportable uh, a level, we're talking the size of a suitcase with n with no real weight to it, and generate powers equivalent of like a nuclear submarine. You know, in, in terms of output or generous, this completely rewrites the game uh, when it comes to what is both possible as well as, uh, you know... Uh, It's not only what's what's what what people you know are dreaming of. It creates realms of new possibility. It's not only what's possible in the present, but because these things then change the game so much, like the invention of the airplane itself, the discipline of nuclear-powered bombers, the discipline of cold fusion, the discipline of high voltage, extreme high voltage. Um, high magnetism. Um, these things are the doorway which we then use to create and final uh, perfect things like the TR-3B. 
So when you look at domestic technology like the TR-3B, for example, and I'm going to be speaking th about things like Red Mercury and, uh, you know, the, the flux liner type system, the torus of electromagnetic uh, energy that it uses to, to limit its density, and people are like, well, how does it generate that kind of power? With a cold fusion nuclear reactor. And you're right, the TR-3B seems to be alien technology until you realize that we've had these cold fusion reactors for 50 years. We've been working on them for 50 straight years. Electrogravitics, electromag, uh, anti-gravity is what it's called on the street, but at the same time, it is its own fill. It's got a nickname, even, a colloquial common world nickname, which is uh, anti-gravity. But it is a discipline of aviation engineering, a high, high level, high, highly advanced level of nuclear engineering, as well as electromagnetic electrical engineering um, uh, uh, discipline. Um, it, it, it's, it's so esoteric, exactly. It's so occult, it's so elite, and at the same time, it is absolutely uh, man-made. It is completely within the realm of mankind's technology, uh, technology and engineering capabilities as they exist and have existed for quite some time. Money is not an issue in this society. They print money. Money is a game to them. This is about material. This is about keeping um, these things maintained, keeping the skill and technician level uh, you know, able to function. That's the only limitation to them is, you know, keeping them flying, is keeping people working on them. And they can, like I said, they can not just with Americans. They don't need to worry about if we have enough Americans learning how to run electrogravitics. We don't need to worry about if enough American students are meeting the quota to become nuclear aviation engineers. We get that from both the AI, which can learn these sciences and, and practice theories, practice mathematical equations, do blueprints, assessments, simulations, etc. in nanoseconds compared to men who would take years, decades and decades to do. They finalize and figure out the engineering before they even draw up the blueprint, really, before they even build the prototype, you build the scale model, they have already calculated exactly. So there's no nothing left to chance. There's nothing left to surprise or to uh, ruin any kind of design um, as simulated in the real world. We're talking about extremely advanced uh, AI and supercomputers that do this. Then... The product is maintained and finalized, created, physically created, by robotics teams. Teams of robots that just assemble parts. Thus, the manufacturing is perfect. Without, with the minimum of amount of people necessary to even see how these things are constructed or be exposed to any hazardous materials or to... Uh, be in any unfortunate situations as to make human error uh, for their own safety or the safety of the production line. Also, you can keep secrets because, you know, robots don't rat 
um, on you. So you really only need one or two people to operate one of these factories beyond a maintenance level for the machinery itself. Uh, people would just do it on software. Also, the supercomputers make it extremely easy. Uh, once again, these facilities could be operated by, for example, heavy industries in other countries like China or uh, within you know, military-industrial-type complexes like deep underground military bunkers, etc., to keep the secret even... even you know, uh, more wrapped up, but the possibility that they exist is not made more difficult because of these, uh, it, you know, these uh, measures. It's made more realistic. It's made more probable because once you start automating the manufacturing of, you know, aviation technologies, airframes, and things like that, yeah, the finishing touches can be put on by a skilled hand, but at the same time, the question is, how much can you really automate? You can put in literally the interiors. You can put in the paint. The, you can you can put on the paint. You can put in the the uh, the avionics, the electronics, the wiring. You can put in the entire plane can be assembled by machines, as long as it, they're appropriately created machines, which an AI should have already taken care of exactly those those steps to begin with. The AI, the the supercomputers have already done most of the creation of the industry. The industry fun foundation was put there, or at least established the know-how to, by factory um, tycoons, etc., like the Rockefellers, like uh, Carnegie's, uh, both here and internationally. This is a full cooperated project on. We're not talking about countries in arms races to develop technologies. And it's an important to speak about the factories. And when we come back after a musical break, because we're hitting the hour mark, and uh, we're going to talk about the gift that the Chinese gave to the Earth Alliance, to the Solar Warden, in the in the the actual physical factories that were recovered in Antarctica, left over by the Notwaffen, left over by the Orion Draco. This is what I'm talking about, is that they surrendered these factories as a show of good faith because they didn't need the factories. They were already creating their own automated factories. It's just a nice gesture because factories are extremely important, and if they had been desperate to create weapons, they would have kept the factories these are alien technology created factories. Like I said, this is Orion Draco factories. These are factories that can create ships that are superior. Yes, I know. I just said we have extremely superior technology than we think. Superior even to our own technology. This is exactly. We have extremely good technology. That's Orion Draco technology. That technology is millions of years old meaning it survived for millions of years. That shit works. <laughs> so that shit works. If it's not broke, don't fix it. They, they're, the Orion Draco always get ragged on because they fucking, we've caught them in a, a downcline, a decline, you know, basically, and they, they were forced to leave. But at the same time, they ruled for millions of years. They fought many other extraterrestrials and ultra-terrestrials within their own era that mankind would not have survived, um, you know, a first encounter with. <laughs> they, their technology would be a game-changer for any 
anyone willing to to wage war against uh, the Earth Alliance. Um, but that was a sign of theirs to us, to to not only you know the West, the United States, the the NATO Rockefeller type of you know uh, Wagnerian opera of the Earth Alliance, but the um, you know, the Astro High Command, the side of good, you know, then really kind of confirmed that we were on a timeline where this technology is being used positively. We're on a timeline where this technology is being used uh, for peace. And uh, even though these are military inventions, like I said, I, I, even though I, I myself know that they are used for war and used for violence against other human beings, even uh, as we speak. That, you know, that hopefully the point is war is bad, but jets are rad. And after this hour comes back, we're going to hit it pretty hard and hit the ground running. And then um, we're going to talk about the the factories, the capabilities, and how that kind of leads into the expedition. Eventually, we're going to end at ground level and what brought, you know, like, like, you know, end at our final destination, which is the hollow earth. So, yeah. Greetings and welcome back. Hope you like the music I've been selecting for this program, as well as other episodes. Um, I've been contemplating whether or not to include a Spotify playlist in my links and include all the music that I use for the uh, podcast, the channel itself. Um, In fact, I've been thinking about that uh, quite favorably as an addition, as a companion for the listening uh, experience. Um, so definitely I'm going to start doing that. And I'm not sure if it's um, by the time of this, you're listening to this uh, episode, by the time of my posting this, that I'll have done that. But hopefully um, to coincide, but if not, you are hearing this first when I do do that So in the future. Um, create a kind of like publicly listenable uh, playlist off Spotify for all the music that I use for my intermissions, my um, entrances, and my outros um, at the hour and every hour. So getting back to what we were speaking about earlier, the concept of factories or manufacturing centers isn't as difficult as one would imagine to create to uh, facilitate the operations of as well as to you know keep secret because of the automation effort as well as the sheer uh, isolation of many many territories on this earth if you're not even considering the idea of mobile factories which can be uh you know, moved around, but you're considering simply the amount of land with seemingly no one around to witness any actions, and then the uh, security that could be easily established around that. When we talk about things like Area 51, that is just the tip of the iceberg. There are ent- entire mountain ranges, there are entire uh, regions of uh, not only, you know, the world, but North America alone. And not only North America, but the continental United States, they could easily can keep factories at this level to produce uh, dozens of such large nuclear-powered craft um, 
as necessary as to facilitate, you know, such long distance flights and to make all that possible, as well as to carry such, you know, heavy loads and um, logistical um, necessities like thousands of men and and dozens of airplanes. You know, airplanes carrying airplanes. That's the level of size of these airframes that nuclear power um, would actually propel. Uh, we're talking um, flying aircraft carriers, which are, you know, not only a reality, but, but the technology flagship of modern day um air forces modern day uh, earth alliance type forces it's these flying aircraft carriers the concept has been around for a long time and actually has been a flagship uh advanced weapon of war since the days of the first rockefeller bomber if you have been following listening to the program you'll know what i'm talking about if you don't then the the true history of the American superpower, the American war machine, um, you know, it has been kept from the. Uh, if you educate and lighten yourself, then you realize, for example, Rockefeller uh, was honored as the name chosen for the German American um, military technology known as known commonly now as Zeppelins. And Zeppelins are, you know, airships that could carry biplanes as featured, or carry airplanes as featured, for example, in Indiana Jones. Uh, showing you the truth right in front of your eyes, and people don't even realize that um, all that is, you know, the way, of the, it wasn't just an oddity, flying wings. Thing. Now I think about it, Indiana Jones does show both those uh, concepts, which are something I'm going to be speaking about. With these airframes, these air technologies, the flying wing and the airship, which is the airship concept, the air carrier concept, which are no longer, you know, at the mercy of lighter than air vehicles, thus creating these uh, these enormous vehicles for seemingly very small payloads, but they are actually now uh, proportionally very very uh, powerful and can can paradoxically lift far more than any weight generally associated with air travel because the electromagnetic effect, the anti-gravity effect of that they possess, that they utilize, lowers their density and creates a sense of weightlessness inside their cargo bay, inside their fuselage. And their uh, payload can actually exceed their own physical, like, weights, which when we're talking about anything, like, if you know anything you're talking about when it comes to aircraft, weight is the a major factor. Weight is the one deciding factor that, you know, you really want to pay attention to if you're overweight or, if, you know, you ha- or you're at your weight limit or weights evenly loaded and things like that because weight is a major factor, especially with bombers, especially with cargo planes, um, any passenger plane, etc., you know, weight is a major factor. With this, it changes the game and allows you to uh, use air travel as an overly efficient means of logistics. So previously, and, and in the conventional world, we use shipping as the choice logistical service or at least a uh, method of service. Like, you know, a ship 
floats on the water and is powered by relatively very fuel-efficient means. And yes, cost of fuel exactly is the major factor when it comes to shipping, but, you know, they carry the most weight proportionally as to anything, including, like, trains, for example, right on the same principle. The idea of why trains are still used is because for very little cost, you can get a major profit of goods and, you know, across a major distance or a long distance. Uh, more distance than, you know, you would resort to local trucking, etc. Small scales trucking, etc. And um, the airplane was never before considered, you know, this. Was never before considered besides, like, Postal and, and and parcel, like, you know, emergency courier ship that they could charge a high cost for was never considered a viable method. Um, the game is actually not like that. The reality is not like that. With rockets being used for shipping, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, uh, being the only competitor for the amount of range that could be traveled... For, you know, in terms of speed and in terms of um, interior access, because a ship really does hit land and has to stop, you know, and then it has to deal with the unloading of itself. Um, its territories are very tightly defined. This, I guess you call it multiplier of range, you know, really allows this whole operation to even exist. That if it was conventional shipping, if it was conventional land travel, uh, that th this could not physically be possible. But I believe now, uh, more than ever, this is why the pace of it, this is why the scale of it is increasing. Um, and it's going to be increasing now even at like in a more exponential level with the inclusion of the Chinese. The Chinese could have used these factories that they handed over to create extra uh, uh, outer space-capable ships. They could have. They could have used them to create the kilometers-long um, cruisers that the Solar Warden and Notwaffen are uh, legendary for. They could have done that, but they are choosing, rather, to gain access to the technology and the engineering blueprints, the basically the standard templates that we already possess in the West uh, and in Solar Warden, etc., to build surface level ships. Like I said, air to surface, uh, surface to air, then back to surface, uh, atmospheric, uh, I guess you call it inner atmosphere only, close atmosphere only, uh, maybe even low Earth orbit space planes, but not. Deep intercon, uh, deep interplanetary type uh, ships or anything. That was the seemingly the deal, the seemingly the trade. They would rather prefer to master these technologies, which are closer at hand to the quote unquote real world, quote unquote this world, than technologies that would let them access new territories. <laughs> that are even further away. So they kind of wanted more to keep uh, things closer and to develop a little bit more practically and pragmatically than uh, 
seemingly uh, endangering any kind of real-world uh, diplomacy or peace. This is a very uh, interesting, but you know, obviously, ultimately positive development with between humanity, and hopefully, with the equalization of, I guess you call it this this technology, even if it's top secret, even if it's kept top secret to the world, could only improve like the overall uh, chances of ascendancy as is that the more people practicing this, the more people doing this, the greater it is for ultimately the human good, for the human species. Regardless if it's still kept top secret, even overseas, even over there, the fact that more people are, as a, you know, people themselves, like people as, you know, uh, entities, regardless state, whatever, are using this technology, then it's a positive thing for aviation. You know, as, as like a platonic concept. Now, will it be used in, in to, to create like a state of world peace? Will it be used to create a new arms race? No, we just said the opposite of that. The, 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 this is actually used to create not an arms race, even though it may be appearing that way. Maybe it may be marketed that way to the plebes, the the lower class that need this sense of tribal rivalry and things. Um, but really, that'll just be their efforts at disclosure. It'll, it'll always be um, the case because, like I said, the, the idea of a sensei is to eventually do away with even the necessity to have fake wars. While you can always say it's good that we that all the wars that we have are fake and only you know for the goyim, that even the need to have fake wars will eventually in the twenty first century not exist, and that we won't have to have these fake you know wag the dog type wars, where soldiers are sent literally chasing their own tail, um, you know just simply to 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 facilitate some kind of like meaning to, to create some kind of meaning um, in, in the military industrial complex or social security state or whatever back in one country versus uh, sacrificing another. Um, that is absolutely, uh, you know, not going to be affected besides in the positive, uh, you know, for the distribution of the technology as well as the uh, disclosure of it, you know, but yeah, so the manufacturing of the technology will be now mostly relegated to Chinese and um, foreign powers hands, so Russian states that ironically both possess, uh, you know, treaties when the Earth Alliance that are going to be like, you know, more secure now. We're giving them more of the Earth while we take more of the, the actual space element of it. Um, but they're actually the ones completely responsible for all of it. So you're going to see Russia give, be given a bone as well, China being given a bone as well. Um, manufacturing facilities, you know, the supercomputers, the works basically being, being given to them so they can create fleets of these aircraft. Fleets of aircraft that Americans have had since the very beginning of these projects, since the 1950s. Since their development and creation, they're going to catch up to us. It's going to be an equality, a three, three equal um, superpowers when it comes to Earth. But all that technology is not going to be used against each other, but to explore 
three different directions, I guess you were, in the hollow earth, or three different, you know, um, directions, and they're going to meet in the middle, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but, but you know, we they need that technology if they're going to even join us, really, or join or join this massive search as well. So the technology they're going to be used, like I mentioned before, is cold fusion powered for the most part. It's not necess- not uh, necessarily a multitasking type uh, situation. Like the transmedium crafts get a lot of attention nowadays. Transmedium craft do exist. The Navy does love them. And at the same time, they're extremely important when it comes to exploration uh, for the seas and everything. Not every single eight, uh, plane or this platform has been created with that dual purpose in mind. Many are strictly atmospheric, strictly conventional planes. Um, you know, at least fundamentally. Yes, they're not conventional planes, but they're meant for com- conventional uh, air power roles, logistics, um, you know, uh, flight, uh, uh, you know, uh, force multipliers like like reconnaissance, like uh, he's like mobility, uh, the air support that they provide, as well as things like electronic warfare platforms, uh, even hospital fl- planes. You know, exactly. Like the the idea of this airborne element in the inclusion of the Hollow Earth exploration, nothing's changed. The same as it's used in any war zone. The same as it's used over any continent, any civilian type of air uh, traffic network. That is fundamentally the same. Radar. Thus needs to be installed and needs to be brought. The way they bring radar to those sites is through shipping. They put radar domes that have possibly the greatest technology when it comes to this radar system ever developed. And yes, they can operate both as a weapon and, you know, as defensive weapon, as well as just the sensory radar to help direct uh, traffic and flow, etc. But they're put on ships giant barges and freighters and then the freighter platforms are sailed out to these various areas uh, it's a good kind of point to talk about the areas themselves mostly archipelagos mostly islands uh, on the fringe of these continents these continents of course are the you know larger than any understandable continent like asia on a scale africa on a scale um so their islands are actually the size of, like, say, for example, Australia or uh, North America or Europe. And when dealing with these islands first, uh, this is where you start seeing a lot of, like, yes, it's an island, but it's still thousands of miles in, in diameter. It's still um, you've got mountain ranges and thick forests. But because it's an island, each island is unique. Each island can be... Uh, separated, you know, by literally impassable ocean ways, and thus the flora and fauna that exist there are unique to that island. Uh, at the same time, they're all representative of the mainland, wherever they exist. There are several of these continents, and several continents worth of these environments. These environments range across the entire range of a spectrum of environments, from Arctic, um, you know, tundra and taiga, to to desert and to uh, you know uh, lush lush type of rainforest or wetlands, basically entire swamps. The idea of land travel over them 
is um, easier said than done. When it comes to land travel over them, though, there are is a number of. Oh, I guess I'll I'll, I'll say that when it comes to it. But we're talking about the a- aviation points now. But I will include the land travel now. Now I'm, I'm talking about. But yes, the air power, drones, uh, reconnaissance, etc. UAVs, uh, automatic uh, helicopters or AI-powered helicopters, you know, helicopter drones, uh, rotary uh, blade drones, uh, fixed-wing drones, uh, rocket rocket fire drones, uh, drones that are fired off the back of a a rocket battery uh, as loitering munitions conventionally also can carry cameras, etc. that are disposable. Um, These things are conventional technologies currently. And thus, they, the same thing is this is what this is where they were pioneered. This is where they were really appreciated for is the ability to serve as scouts when it came to situations of very limited manpower. Instead of spending literally days and weeks exploring uh, through binoculars and survey equipment, you know, mountain ranges and things, they send LIDAR-operated swarm drones, and literally within one afternoon, they can send hundreds of these drones fired from a rocket battery, propelled into the atmosphere, or propelled through the hollow Earth atmosphere, um, or these lost continents' atmosphere, over any weather conditions. Seeing through clouds, seeing through whatever, but, you know, exactly. The idea of it being a rush operation is also kind of foolish. They can strategically pinpoint, and with these radars, use a Doppler, use uh, weather predictive software, etc. And it's not Skull Island anymore, where it's people going in blind. Um, You know, even though that's more of accurate representation of how things were in the 50s and 60s, the idea that they would use, like, helicopters uh, from the Marine Corps, but then drop seismological bombs and things, uh, even though they were, you know, very professional, and they were very skilled pilots, etc. But they were, like, CIA, uh, you know, hired mercenary pilots and stuff that would do that, drop conventional weaponry with scientific equipment located in it. And this is what many of these weapon platforms have been converted into. So as I go into talking about these planes, uh, understand that, yes, they're weapons of war, and yes, the military was the ones creating them, but they have been converted, for the most part, into scientific surveys equipment and for logistic equipment uh, meant to support the operations, the human operations, by providing uh, supply, cargo, and uh, rescue and uh, rapid transport operations from these personnel, right? Whoever, wherever, and 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 uh, whatever they may be doing, right? So one of the first planes to uh, think about is the uh, supersonic airliner concept. The supersonic airliner concept is not uh, an obsolete idea, nor did it fail with the closing of the Concorde. In fact, it, while a holy grail in civilian, uh, you know, the civilian airliner world, the issues that make it impractical, like sonic booms and like fuel costs and things like that, do not exist in the military. Since the development of the Concorde, these the United States, the uh, Russians developed Concorde analogs, supersonic uh, airliners. Those are the first, uh, 
you know, steps into how they were able to not only reach these lands, but to actually operate within these lands, creating airfields that would operate the Sonic Concord, which is able to take a large amount of equipment when converted into an electronic warfare platform. Um, yes, they use P3s. Yes, they use C-130. Uh, I believe they called global compasses. Um, electronic warfare uh, converted like F-18s, etc. But for the for the actual job they do, these sonic airline uh, airliners not only carry teams of scientists, but also a lot of equipment like telescopes and things like that. People don't realize that that uh, one of the things that they were doing in NASA was putting telescopes in 747s. Now, the telescope in a 747 is not a you know um, it, it's not a radical idea. It's it makes perfect sense. Is why NASA. Would, I'm surprised they only admit to having one. Um, but putting these same the same gear in, say, for example, um, a Concord or a Concord analog, um, you know, it, it it wouldn't diminish the performance. It would just be a different, faster, more high performance platform, you know, to operate. And this is playing, you know, this is this is this is playing with uh, is playing in the big leagues right now when it comes to the actual um, support equipment. You know, we're not dealing with the the cheapest things to, that we can get our hands on. We're not talking about the the low and slow approach. We're talking about you know high altitude supersonic airline car- uh, carriers rigged with cameras and scientific sensors and you know. Um, the ability to carry, you know, large amounts of people um, to their destination, etc. So, good way to look um, for blueprints: the Airbus A380, the uh, yeah, the Boeing Sonic Cruiser, the Airbus A380. That's one of them. The Virgin Galactic Mach 3.0 supersonic jet, or it's it's basically the Concorde 2.0. The Virgin Galactic uh, Mach 3.0 supersonic jet is a platform that Galactic is making in its space program as a space plane. While it's not near as fast as, um, you know, a hypersonic craft, this is exactly what I'm talking about, is that while people think that the technology is for science fiction or like, you know, space type capabilities. It's a modernized, uh, constantly worked on type of project. It's going to be, this stuff is going to be disclosed. We're already 20 years into the 21st century. We're already 20 years to the 21st century. So it's like 1920 level, uh, when it comes to disclosing this information. First, we're in this biplane era. Now we're going to get into the fixed wing era. Then we're going to get into the jet engine era. Then we're going to get into the stealth era. Now, I'm saying this technology already exists. I'm saying that they're already working on it. And I'm saying they're using it to explore Hollow Earth. And these lost continents. I got a supersonic spike S512. I'll repeat. The supersonic spike s 
512. Supersonic Spike Sierra 512. So this is a platform that is being publicly, you know, researched. This is where you, I'm, I'm saying that the public names of these models so you can look into it yourselves. But these are the equipment that is being used. Uh, the development of quiet sonic booms. This is because they want to operate even over populated areas and keep the secret. They want to be able to operate without anyone not initiated into the program to ever really be aware of them, including even the the uh, eventual applications commercially. One of the things they've already developed was how to silence sonic booms, how to silence um, jet engines, how to silence helicopters. They can run quiet engines. They can run quiet helicopters. They can run quiet jets that operate no louder than a loud con- a loud concert or a loud car. Uh, and this sounds, uh, I mean, like a loud car is uh, stereo, not a concert. They run quieter than concerts. They run a little bit louder than like a car stereo. And so um, if you actually think about, you know, what that really entails when it comes to being able to fly jets in city limits, for example, it's not like those ghetto blasters are blowing out windows. You know, when they hit the sonic, when they hit the, uh, the, the, the bass boost, that's how sonic planes would be, sonic jets. Uh, or sonic booms from jet fighters operating within city environments. They would be able to fly literally past skyscrapers without breaking the windows or without disrupting or, or being even felt or known about. This increases stealth capability, yes, in warfare, but at the same time doesn't disturb or alert the locals when you are exploring the hollow earth. When you are, say, for example, flying over cities or tribes of people... Who would are animals like titans or um, even extraterrestrial species that have colonized for a long time? When you are flying over them, that they are using their technology, using their natural senses, any disturbance will be immediately recognized, including running lights, including the noise, etc., and it will infect or affect their opinion or perception of you as a friend or a foe, as a threat, and ultimately you don't even want them to know about you until you're ready for them to know about you. The silent jets, we're not talking about anti-gravity here, we're just saying practical jets running quietly is highly advantageous to this. If you want to see how this research is being developed and how much importance it's being used, you know, being thought of it, no, it's already disclosed, just rewind the clock 30 years and be like, yeah, we had this technology in the 90s. We were using this to, you know, say, for example, fly jets over populated areas of the Amazon jungle. We were using this technology to literally fly jets over cities at night, uh, you know, between local American bases, etc. And as well as to operate huge fleets of oversized equipment because you would think later on these nuclear planes must be loud. We have technology that suppresses any noise. It's not specific to a certain, uh, you know, a certain uh, generation of that noise. It's that good that it can that it can literally quiet sonic booms. It can quiet. Um, sound down to a whisper. 
as a sound from a roar to a whisper. Okay, SpaceX and Starlink um, versus Amazon, uh, the the Kuiper, and OneWeb. Right, so this is space internet. These are satellites that they send up in space to form relays to provide internet access over certain geological positions, certain uh, either fixed or orbiting um, around the sky. This is specifically created to provide wireless internet link up and communication abilities from these deep, deep off the grid, uh, you know, areas, these territories to central command stations and locations around the world. Uh, imagine someone in area 51, for example, being given, you know, satellite feed of video being recorded in Antarctica and having it encrypted and having it secured and not needing to use civilian-operated satellites like from a phone company or a cable company. They use, which was already the point, the military had already operated this system. This was now just to disclose it. This was now just to um, allow it to have competition or at least this type of mainstream... See, this is what I said about disclosure. It doesn't come with... It's it's open. It's It's an open secret. It's... They don't tell you specifically that this is what it's used for, but it is internet satellite. It's an internet satellite system that's deployable for anywhere in the world and for the highest bidder, which specifically is, people think it's for, you know, populated areas, for commercial use. It is for uh, secretive clandestine operations in areas of the world that the mainstream world is not permitted to know about. Moving down the list of platforms that are going to be used, or at least developed by China, or at least worked on by the Chinese once the the, uh, future kind of rolls up to it. The concept of the uh, Airbus Zero... It's a hydrogen fly, it's a hydrogen powered flying wing. This is the future that is the now. And people need to start realizing when they think about planes, the classic cylinder shape with wings and a tail on the aft end and the cabin and cockpit and the the the, the, the big the front and the idea of it looking like a cylinder. That was one design pattern that is not the most efficient, but was the most common. In fact, keeps most of the world primitive by many standards. Uh, The flying wing is the best natural shape for aircraft. That has just absolutely been proven, and that is the case. Why it's so secret is because it is a matter of national security and kept as, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's... public visibility is kept exactly um, um, that. It's a it's a secret. It's above top secret. It's one of the closest guarded national secrets. And people think, well, the B two was uh, was made. People were aware of the B two in the eighties. That was disclosed in the late eighties. They've been working on the B two since the nineteen forties. That is absolutely the case. They have been working on the B two since the nineteen forties. So. 
The Airbus new plane, the Concept Zero, is a flying wing that operates kind of like a um, B-2 mixed with an airliner, in which once the electrogravitics takes place, once it takes hold, the density and weight of the internal cabin, the crew and the passengers involved, you know, it can actually carry a a more it can carry more people than than a conventional airliner. Um, I believe the scale of it is actually a two story plane uh, compatible with most of the largest uh, you know cargo planes, and there are different uh, models of them. Concept device uh, sketches I've seen, one of which was a flying V, which I thought was extremely interesting. The concept of a flying V, but for cargo and crew, you know, um, uh, airliner uh, passengers. This is, uh, and it has to be, to cover the ranges necessary to cross to actually reach these place these lost continents. It's one thing to say that you could operate this fl- this fleet of uh, aircraft locally, say for example from airstrips there, airstrips where planes are brought over shipping, uh, brought you know via ship and then assembled locally at least in this lost continents in this hollow earth atmosphere in these Antarctica regions. And for if you're having trouble uh, conceiving of it, think of Antarctica. If a plane is to fly to Antarctica, it must have long and sufficient range. Now, you're right. You could bring this uh, plane by ship in an aircraft carrier and operate it locally. You could bring it and then operate it from an airport locally, thus reducing the range. But then the question is, how do you, you know, you have to bring it there first. And then you start questioning because Antarctica is relatively very close that most planes can actually make that range if they were given safe travel to it, you know, at least close enough to kind of, they're not flying literally across the world um, to get to it. These flying wing aircraft carriers for uh, these flying wing um, uh, airliners and cargo planes, for lack of a, a better term for them, are designed to fly literally over 24 hours at any given time. They are designed literally to fly for days. They are going to be designed. Uh, with things like autothological uh, wingtips, they're going to be designed with things like solar panels and hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, they're going to be designed with things like internalized cabins being more like the airships of old, like the Zeppelins that I previously mentioned, than um, anything like a, an expedient red eye or pond hopper. They're not a private jet where they're just meant to, to conduct business. They are a private command center you know that can loiter for days and days and days and it operates more like a uh, E6 Mercury or a uh, Globemaster and uh, these planes conventionally are meant for like flying command centers in terms of nuclear war or world war Um, the idea of the people going to explore hitting the ground or or being on the ground for the majority of their exploration, that is where these things come in. People are not, I mean, yes, there are, but the people in charge of these things are not on the ground. 
when they want to see, when they want to command, when they want to explore, they go into the air. From the air, they do these long-term loiter missions in which they can basically uh, travel and survey large swaths of area and not be endangered by the locals, not be endangered by anyone on the ground. Um, but at this point, they become vulnerable to uh, any kind of air-based situation, so thus they have to have escorts and chaperones. These are become the fighters, the drones, and many of them carry fleets of protective drones, fleets of anti-air missiles, uh, defensive batteries, things like that, even things like uh, uh, laser defenses to blind enemy optics, electronic da- jammers, etc. They are literally like the flying... Uh, a B-2 bomber-type craft in Godzilla King of the Monsters in 2019, where they have ospreys. They are like flying aircraft carriers. For lack of a better word, they aren't true flying aircraft carriers, but they have the possibility to be. And this is the design pattern, which does later on become the flying aircraft carrier that we're going to talk about. But yeah, looking to that, the idea of the flying wing... um, uh, airliner, or at least command center, because like all 747s can be converted to uh, electronic warfare platforms. They can be converted to uh, flying command centers. They can be for- converted to flying hospitals. These are your platforms that do that. We're not talking about 747s, although they they would be useful over in, in, in that kind of capacity, but we're talking about a more advanced uh, system, a more uh, uh, high-technology system. Okay, the boom, the boom XB1. This is the the practical hypersonic engine. The boom XB1 rollout is uh, I mean, the boom overture, I believe it's what it's called. Uh, is uh, no, I think it's just called the boom XB1. Yeah, the boom XB1 is what it's called. The the public hypersonic passenger craft that can take anyone from around the world in like four hours tells you what the I want you guys to look it up and research it because it tells you what you need to know without without having to like you know dig too deep into the dark web about hypersonic craft and what it really means to fly that fast four hours from New York to uh, New Zealand you know across the entire Pacific Ocean, which before modern industrial technology was almost impassable. It took months to get across the ocean. You know, it leaps and bounds. And that most of the craft that we are speaking about can perform at or near those speeds. Now, I'm not saying that every day people are just flying around as fast as fuck, you know, up there. But, yeah, every day, that's the that's the conventional understanding of time. If you really needed to get around the world, you could do so within one day. And that's provable with the Boom XB-1. Not dark science, it's not science fiction. That's absolutely the platform selling point, the Boom XB-1. Okay, next on the list of aircraft to look up 
or to research on your own, or at least to be uh, aware of, because analogs or evolutions of which will be made around the world now that China has been given um, the manufacturing capabilities, the blueprints to create these in their public disclosure of this technology before the public disclosure of the exploration of the hollow earth. True nuclear-powered aircraft attack carriers. These are assault carriers. These are aircraft carriers made specifically for war, for long-term campaigns, for mobilization and engagement of the enemy, and they are crewed by military personnel in the Solar Warden, um, you know, and 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 various other ultra-terrestrial races that, in accordance with the Earth Alliance, these craft are absolutely the smoking gun when it comes to the truth of the advanced level of war fighting strategies that occurred before the conversion of all these projects into above top secret, into beyond top secret projects, before they were became matters of urgent national security, these projects were public in some ways, publicly advertised. They were publicly worked on and promoted by rather independent sources, uh, scientists, engineers that simply had a dream and a dream to make the best aircraft uh, to defend uh, the United States or to win wars for the United States and the military industrial complex. Now, like I said before, this is no longer going to be used strictly for an offensive nuclear war with, say, for example, Russia. But these were used specifically in the war of the Aztec Maya, the Amazon, the Hollow Earth. These are the standard, the flagship, the capital flagships of the modern uh, frontier, the modern, um, you know, beyond top secret um, air forces of the world. The name to look up is CL, that's Charlie Lima, dash 1201. This thing was not only, I believe it was, um, I believe it was as wide as an aircraft carrier when it came to wingtip to wingtip. I believe it's um, true dimensions were its engines were the size of 747s. I believe it had a crew of 1,500 people. If I'm getting my facts right, I believe that it could fly for 25 years as designed in the 60s. So with the 1960s white world technology of nuclear power, they were designing bombers to be able to fly for 25 years. Now its payload would be a mix between conventional missiles which would be operated from the wingtips position. So it's like it's flying like an ICBM launcher. It would also possess the ability to have smaller fighters in its wings. Being able to deploy fighters uh, as interceptors or as literally attack craft uh, with their own payloads of weaponry. Able to perform multiple missions at any one time. 
or serve as a long-term loitering defense, each taking a basically the, the role of a flying aircraft carrier guarding entire zones of territory. And like, as prescribed, in, in constant vigilance and constant patrol for upwards of years at a time. <laughs> years of deployment at a time. So either mission-specific attack craft bringing, uh, bringing either reinforcements or, or an assault element into a campaign or theater of war. Or um, as long-term defensive uh, mobile, basically... Overland aircraft carriers, which you know, for the same application and uh, responsiveness uh, when it comes to literal, uh, you know, war fighting campaigns, long term campaigns. This I have personally witnessed, I have personally experienced. They are used specifically in that capacity to constantly be layered on top of each other in terms of. Uh, uh, tours of extension and tours of duty and to basically be a constant presence of air power in areas, um, you know, without needing to do things like build a base. And remember the territories can sometimes be completely landlocked for thousands and thousands of miles. This is literally the uh, solution to having to work mile to mile is to be able to literally fly in um, with these nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and have a flying uh, uh, command center, a flying uh, base center, in addition to your flying V, uh, flying wing, um, you know, troop transports, etc., basically have a completely airborne... Uh, you know, a uh, complete airborne colony in, in, in many cases because you could have other things like lighter-than-air vehicles, etc., being both highly mobile and never really needing to invest in any kind of permanent uh, infrastructure development. Everything being either from high orbit dropped in uh, via, you know, satellites or, or, or low-orbit uh, space supply chains, are from one of these platforms, which have these nuclear engines. And in terms of noise pollution or uh, fuel consumption or anything, remember that we're dealing with uh, cold power fusion and most craft converted to that. There's no need to run with an obsolete fuel method like fuel. And um, you can use the, the silent operating powers to keep this relatively very clandestine as well as survivable where you don't have to worry about the exposure to these things for the crew or for uh, you know anyone else okay when it does come down to fuel though everyone should really read about uh, the Boeing resource carrier the Boeing resource carrier is a type of airframe which was a airborne oil tanker. The specifics are very interesting. The size, the scale, 
of these planes, which I guess would be another good way of segueing into the scale of things. The scales of planes are, you know, the, the sky is the limit when it comes to the actual size of a plane. I used to think planes could only get to a certain size before they became too large to fly. The flying fuel tanker and the um, <laughs> the cousin of the fuel tanker, the colossal cargo ship, um, extra large, a, a literal supermassive platform called the Boeing Pelican, um, proved those concepts wrong, as well as the nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carrier. We're talking engines... The size of 747s. We're talking about dozens of tires and landing gear in a system and apparatus that couldn't, that would be too heavy to move over the ground in a conventional sense. And it's only made possible with electrogravitics, specifically the, the effect of the Hutchinson effect, which allows solid matter and solid mass like steel and metal to become lighter than air in a sense and to it to kind of break the bonds of gravity on electronic energy signature like like level. Uh where bars of lead can float, where balls of metal will float. Um with no with nothing else besides this force acting on it. And or also the the idea that like if you put uh two magnets facing each other in inside a sphere like a like a like some kind of a contain like a can um and drop it, it appears to defy gravity and slowly drift down. Uh, this is this is classroom level, like this is high school level like kind of uh physics. It's just, it's one of those things, like it's an effect. Uh, but this may, may uh, come as a surprise to people, but even within the Earth's atmosphere, like I said that the planes can be thousands of feet in, with wingspan. The planes can carry hundreds of thousands of tons of cargo, and armament, etc. They can carry thousands of people safely and comfortably inside them. We're not talking the planes that we're allowed to have, you know, in the surface world, the commercial world, 747s or anything like that. We're talking about, like, the real shit. This is absolutely what they deal with. They can put, say, for example, a thousand Marines uh, with their scientists and, and crew and, and equipment and everything in one of these. Like, say, for example, one Pelican. They could put thousands of men in there they could put trucks, they could put camps, they could put RVs, they could put tanks, they could put bullets, they could put food, they, all the water, put it all inside of it, just parachute it out, airdrop it out, uh, and, and it would take literally one plane to do the work of an entire squadron of logistical planes. Like uh, It would take one plane to set up literally an entire camp. We're making it far more efficient and we're making it far easier with the creation of these platforms. And that's what drives the creation of these platforms. It's it's both only possible with these platforms and it's possible 
because of these platforms. Like it's they open up new possibilities. I keep trying to say like the the creation of one possibility and the proof of it makes hundreds more possible. Like the possibilities uh, eventually are endless and limitless. For example. Another alternative to these supermassive cargo planes carrying thousands of troops is rocket deployment. One such piece of technology is actually a a safe reentry rocket uh, capsule that can carry 1,200 Marines. This was actually a blueprinted concept, which is public knowledge. They kept the entire construction of it secret because they they eventually were like, this is way too advanced in, in space age for the most part. But this is how they actually do transport troops in active war zones in the hollow earth. This is how they do it off world. Uh, off world, the situation is different because of the gravity, but on world, they can do it just as easily with... Uh, uh, parachutes and uh, deployable like airbags, etc. But they get 1,200 Marines and they stack them 600 to a level on this landing capsule and then that landing capsule is fired from a rocket, reaches atmosphere, reaches the orbit, deploys, and then safely parachutes into a lands- landing zone and they have global reach. They can reach anywhere in the globe in one hour. This is a high-speed interdiction force. This is a high-speed reinforcement force. This is like, you know, uh, when this, if they were ever to be deployed in North America, uh, we're dealing with something that needs to be dealt with. You know, like, in the Hollow Earth, though, this could be reinforcements or simply ways to circumnavigate rough terrain. They could set up, for example, a vertical launch pad, a, a, a portable, uh, assemble the rocket. The rocket could be delivered to them via these cargo planes and other channels. They then assemble the rocket. 1,200 Marines get inside. They blast off, go across the mountain range or go even further into land, into the continent, and then set up shop again, repeating the process and leapfrogging off each other at ranges of intercontinental ballistic missiles. We're not talking about taking a month to walk 10 miles through a, a harsh terrain or, or seeing a mountain that's too high to climb or, you know, uh, freezing to death because we didn't uh, prepare for the winter. We're talking about being able to literally build and assemble a rocket that could safely jettison you thousands of miles away from wherever you are in case you needed to evacuate. Say you were getting attacked, this could be used for evacuation. Say you were needed the reinforcements, this is how uh, they can confidently operate because it's not, you know, Marines operating uh, completely alone, you know, surrounded by all sides uh, in a green hell. No, it's fifty. It's it's these Marines twelve hundred at a time being able to assemble and uh, you know link up. Basically, you know it, it, the. If everyone is at arm's reach, how far do their arms actually reach? And that's, you know, very, very far. We're talking about continents, like I said, larger than Asia. We're talking about, say, having to explore and colonize India, you know, and then taking it one step at a time. 
well, those are pretty big steps when you're using rockets, you know, as, as your shoes, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's pretty big, uh, leaps and bounds rather than being able to be like, Oh, we need to cross the river. I hope we don't drown. You know, like <laughs> how are we going to get across this river? There's no bridge. Well, they just build a fucking rocket and literally fly a thousand miles, you know, inland and be like, okay, I'll stop shop and then build another rocket and fly a thousand miles inland. They have these things. This is what I was saying is that they can deploy thousands of people. They can deploy hundreds of tons of equipment. They can deploy vehicles, fuel for the vehicles. They can deploy uh, like the the uh, cargo uh, Boeing Boeing resource carrier one and a flying oil tanker. Uh, comparatively, could carry as much oil, crude oil or refined gasoline as a ship, and could do so over land. Specifically for uh, communities and countries that exist, like the like in mountain ranges, like Tibet, uh, you know, Mongolia, etc., like Tajikistan, Kazakhstan. This is why this technology was pioneered, engineered. Not everyone touches a shipping lane, and it's extremely difficult you know, to operate and create pipelines from scratch. Now we'll be going into a musical break because we're hitting the hour. And as we get back to the next hour, we'll hit to the completion of the, I guess you call it above top secret air plant, uh, aircraft, the uh, air platforms and the aviation science, which is being used now for peaceful reasons, uh, collaboration with everyone in the world, all our neighbors, exploring the, you know, I guess you call it the outer limits for real. So, yeah. All right, aloha, back in. Hope you're liking this musical interludes at the hour every hour. That has been the format since the very beginning. And I hope to be the format till the very end. But yes, back into the the undisclosed top secret uh, aviation world. That is instrumental and fundamental into the success of the exploration and the taming of the Wild West, as it were, um, the Western world, the greater continent world, the greater world around us, that have lost lands and, time, and lands time forgotten. Being the force multiplier of the human species, being the thing that makes us as powerful, if not the most dominant and most powerful species on Earth. This is crucial to understand that when we talk about human beings, I think we talk about them, we do not separate or distinguish between human beings and our technology, our engineering, and our weaponry. And these platforms uh, may not be direct weapons, but they are indirect force multipliers for the before now military expansion of the entire human race, not the military competition between human races, as is the cover story for their creation and their research and their development. That unlike what they would want you to think, these are not weapons in an arms race against one another, against other humans, but against, or against other tribes inside our world, but against other tribes from other worlds, which coexist alongside our world. Uh, competitively, uh, sometimes maybe even predatorily. 
there are many of these projects. There are many of these uh, planes that I could continue to list. I wanted to list the supermassives, the cargoes, and the nuclear-powered uh, flying wings and, and larger platforms. But, for example, conventional platforms are used in unconventional ways in these scenarios. Uh, militarily, offensively, as an assault craft, one has to think that planes... Are nuclear or planes with nuclear weapons are able to in their uh, or by their uh, sole existence with their with their lone operation one of these platforms if well armed or, you know adequately deployed can do an entire army's worth of devastation can do an entire war's worth of devastation within a matter of moments matter of seconds really. All major strategic bombers they exist are capable of carrying nuclear weapons and nuclear payloads. The one that you would be surprised to hear about are the 747, sorry, 747s, which have been converted by the United States Air Force and the United States Navy to carry weaponry, including laser weaponry, including nuclear weaponry, and being, in essence, like metal gears and being like highly mobile uh, nuclear chess pieces with which to project atomic weaponry or nuclear weaponry, high yield weaponry, including hydrogen weaponry. And when we say nuclear weaponry, understand the implications of a nuclear weapon could be biological, could be virological, could be a weapon of mass destruction in many different ways. Could be uh, high yield, low yield, could be salted cobalt, it could be neutron. Uh, the weaponry of, of of the secret space program is really comes down to the missile and the missile warhead and the payload. But by design, it is known as a nuclear weapon because the size and the, the power with which it's necessary to carry such and deploy such. You know, this is how layered the community really is. This is how es uh, esoteric the speech really is amongst them. It's completely community speech. When I say things like nuclear weapons, that means just large missile-based weaponry, uh, weapons of mass destruction. These 747s are nuclear-armed with uh, nuclear missiles, but six of these missiles, and they can fire them while in flight to six different targets. The 747, believe it or not, is a weaponized platform. It is a platform, a strategic nuclear weapon, a strategic nuclear bomber. This is what I was saying with the idea that it's not an unconventional thing to think in the real world that what we know as conventional aircraft are used for peaceful purposes, but originally designed for military applications. And it filters down from the very top down into our world, which is for our convenience and for our benefits and for our, uh, you know, for our commercial interests and uses, etc., and that this is like something that we're given, like, you know, actually given due to the world's peace or the world's uh, circumstances for peace being that, you know, be existing the way they are. So if there was war between the United States and the Soviet Union, if the Cold War had escalated, the 747 would have been 
a mass-producible, unarguably mass-producible, efficient nuclear weapons delivery platform that pilots could be easily educated to fly and operate, and they could be crewed uh, sensibly with, you know, a very, like, obviously could be crewed, uh, armed and, and operated, you know, from any airport, which it operates conventionally from now, and so it would have a wide distribution as well as, you know, a, a, a amazing, uh, anal- a, a, a amazing service, uh, a possible service like that of the the flying fortress or the uh the b2 bomber or the uh, uh b52 bomber in vietnam um this is something which is not accidental this is something which is coincidental the b52 bomber could have easily been a passenger plane if the, the situations were different during the times of its inceptions and usage and creation uh and so we look forward to the future Seeing these things not used as weapons of mass destruction, but as, you know, benefits to mankind. Remember the, the Beyond Top Secret Texan official stance and platform on on war is that uh, war is bad, but jets are rad. And we are a pacifist platform that believes in world peace, even if that peace has to come from superior t- technology and uh, firepower and obviously we heavily are endorsing the experience we have with the you know US Navy and aviation warfare training etc in this specific uh, specializ- specialization and um, uh, expertise of mine it may be hard to express but uh, you guys have to kind of walk more uh, into the community shoes of aviation to understand the application, the reality of these things. It's kind of a shame, uh, really, that it's kept secret. It's kept so far away from the average person because it really does inspire a lot of like positive, uh, you know, beliefs of the world. And like, it's really cool. Like, like people just naturally think technology and jets themselves like aircraft aviation flying it's just really positive it's like it's a really positive step and as i said don't make a distinction when you think about human beings and technology especially aviation uh don't think human beings can't fly uh human beings have spent a considerable uh fortune and and so many lives and and you know Exactly. Got, got moved heaven and earth itself basically to make that reality. Human beings fly. Uh, exactly. That's what I say. Like on the face of it, it sounds so ironic, right? Where you're like, human beings can't fly, and you're like, no, human beings fly. Like human beings are, you know, exactly. That's exactly what human beings obsess over is flight. And then you're like, oh yeah, we have spent trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars into aviation. We have you know, the largest military in the world and specifically to support the aviation industry, to support air fighting, air air warfare, air supremacy. Uh, we have the Air Force cultures, entire branches of our military built on aviation, aviation sciences. We have NASA. We're the first nation to go to the moon in the convenient mainstream narrative, and that's because of the power of flight, the spirit of the aviator. America's history and identity is specifically built into the idea of aviation, and aviation is built into the idea of being American. It is absolutely the case in in so many different ways. Um, But yeah, I digress. The point is, 
in the future, it'll be the same. In which, when we come up with anti-gravity, disclose it and everything, it'll be closely tied to American identity. Uh, all of this is closely tied to the American technological lead, the edge we have when it comes to aviation uh, in a military uh, aspect, in a military uh, sense. So, the thing that I keep, I keep going on... Um, I do have a video uh, lined up that I'm going to record the audio for from Law Found and Explained, um, an excellent aviation channel uh, on YouTube, but, you know, Pirate's Life for me. He does a great job, though, at listing 40 uh, platforms, which, like I was doing before, uh, and, and just it takes so long to do, to run through the list and explain each, like a little bit about each one. Um that I'm going to record it, him listing it off and just a little fact of each. It's a neat little video, I believe. I think it's 15 minutes in total, and he lists 40 platforms, which I believe are being used in these projects that I've been explaining and going into it. Um, I believe these platforms that were originally designed by either America or Russia will soon be designed and developed publicly by China. To, to loop in, in this third hour, uh, what I was saying in the first hour and the second hour, I believe these planes will be used for their Jade Dragon fleets, as well as their Gold Dragon fleets, which gold, I said, is more off-planet. I'll be getting to that in another episode. And that'll be the reason why I'm explaining these ships. Not not merely sci-fi nerding out, it's because they are relevant to the geopolitical developments currently uh, happening, basically the evolution of the world into the 21st century. And this is uh, very exciting. This is a very, very exciting time. I don't think that the attitude I'm, I'm kind of you know, sharing is you know coming across, but yeah. <coughs> I am very excited about this new development because this means that finally the public is going to see that these designs... These craft work. These vessels work. These these aircraft work. These platforms are successful and effective and efficient. And it's not it's not <laughs> relevant the details that they officially were canceled for, uh, specifically budgets or um, technological limitations or specifically money in the West and uh, the downfall of the Soviet Union in the East. And both those are irrelevant to actual creation and, and uh, mastery of technology, like, you know, the actual engineering of the technology. Um, I think that we really have to kind of go back through everything we worked on the last hundred years and say, if it's possible, then it exists. And if it was publicly canceled, then it is in operation currently. <laughs> then they say it's currently operating in these theaters, these unknown theaters. Uh, now, that's fine on a human level. I just, uh, yeah, it's fine that the Earth Alliance is getting to benefit from this brilliant technology. Now, the everyday person, the average person, needs to benefit from this technology as well down the line which I am 100% confident will occur, the same as airliners. The technology of behind jet engines was top secret and purely military in the 1930s. 
Uh, the first jet engine was made in 1908. And, and you know, like the, the concept of um, these platforms being weaponized is what makes them top secret, not the technology as a benefit to mankind. You know, no one creates something and says, this could help people. Let's keep it top secret. People will keep it top secret because it could possibly hurt people. And they keep it top secret not to keep themselves safe. They keep it top secret so they can hurt people without anyone else knowing how they're doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they want to uh, get away with war. They want to win the war. They want to, and when winning war ultimately is killing someone in a way they don't really see coming. Like, because like, they, they can endanger you if it's a defensive thing. Is that no one wants a fair fight. You have to f- constantly figure out these secret weapons. And they want you to think that, um, like, exactly, because the Soviet Union collapsed, there's no need to create these these platforms, these planes, these aircraft. There's no need to explore this technology anymore because we don't need an we don't have an enemy. But they don't see why it could help people. It's a benefit. It could make air travel free. It could help the world. It could help build civilization. It could help people, uh, you know, literally travel the world in ways no one ever explored or imagined. And live in, in areas that are now accessible because you see that tests and borders on the lie. They they, they are keeping us on a timeline of uh, a certain state of development. Like the like Warburg said in 1907 that America is like Italy in the 1400s or like Babylon in the 2000 BC. Like, it is. Like, if you actually know what you're talking about, you're like, America is, like, fucking, like, really, really ancient feeling. And you realize there's, like, this weird overall, like, primitivism. Like, they don't want you to get anti-gravity. They don't want you to have a plane the size of a ship. And, you know, like, carrying fuel across the... They want you to build pipelines, like, in, in, like, they want you to do things which ultimately uh, don't change your reality. You know, they don't want you to, to use what you know. They want you just to kind of stay at one level. And uh, with this new development, I believe that's going to change. The thing I'm most excited about, because there are dozens and dozens of platforms, which I'm not going to be... Uh, I'm going to get the the other found and explained guy have done he's already done the work the video is already out i'm just using a public resource at this point and he can list off all the the cool names and companies that help develop them so that you can look it up later or go to his channel and find out the material which is where i found a lot about this stuff absolutely incredible source of information found and explained there's also uh mustard there's also you know a number of youtube aviation channels that are really open about this and really exploring this, like the nuclear-powered aircraft. Um, uh, Found explained as an excellent video that recently came out, and it's specifically about the journey of the development of a nuclear bomber. Um, but, for example, you know the, the Airbus Mach 3, uh, Paris to New York City in only two hours. And that's the Draco ship that uh, is mentioned in the the other video. But that's one that I would like to really kind of work on and explain is that that level of speed, that level of hypersonic travel designed specifically for an airliner, 
you know, and being restricted to the idea that there's not enough customers to keep that, to make that viable or make that important. It doesn't supersede the fact that we now have engines that could say, for example, transport the sick to hospitals, you know, around the world in a matter of hours. They could be flying hospitals or flying ambulances. They could, uh, you know, uh, fly vital, like, you know, resources and trade and everything if there was ever a need for that but the like organs and things but the idea behind it isn't uh profitable like you say like that would be too much help that would be or there, it doesn't exist we're not in that bad shape right like the idea that we don't there's no emergency need for it that is um further proof in my mind why this exists specifically to cater to the hollow earth or this exploration or this breakaway civilization or off-world needs or between the secret societies themselves that that kind of craft would go through the engineering process would go through the blue board process the the uh, the drawing board process and go through the blueprint process and then be conceptualized and created for for just to be canceled? No, that would be that would be specifically used between this breakaway civilization flying between their elite and private installations, their secret airfields like Area Fifty One, etc., uh, flying between their deep military underground bases, or flying extremely long distances within practical times. Um, Say, for example, it's Paris to New York in the example uh, given in two hours. If you had to fly the same amount of distance literally over Siberia, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hit the end of Siberia. You would still have more Siberia to fly over. And if you need to practically fly over Russia like semi-daily or, or every other couple of days... You know, then the only real practical way to do that, instead of taking like a 10-hour flight every day, or like say you needed to fly from the United States to Australia, and you had to get there like within an afternoon, that's not a public thing. That's not for the general public. That's not for even the elite public. That's for government personnel of a certain level of security clearance that's of uh you know the ICC membership that's of people not in the regular world but in the breakaway civilization who live amongst the regular world who coexist with it those are people who don't go to like you know they don't check in to customs they are on private airstrips etc they're usually using military bases to cover for their uh, entrance into countries without going through customs and stuff like that. Like it's like that. That's that level of application. And there are just so many more um, things like transmedium craft. Transmedium craft are very real. People get really weirded out about that with the USOs. Like, how can craft like the Tic Tac go, go from air to water? How could uh, Shag Harbor, where the UFO went from uh, a sky to the sea and it was seen moving away, the lights were? How could all of this be possible? Uh, 
there are physical rules that allow it. That's what I'm saying about physics earlier, where I said you have to learn an education and they tell you to unlearn it. People who think they know physics, even people who went to the university level and stuff and learned physics, they learned how to pass what the tests were asking them. They learned how to make the, they learned how to play the game. The real physical world around us, it's, it's far, it's like you only learned a fraction of it, so you think that fraction of it is all that there is. It, there are so many weird things that are physically possible. That's saying physically possible. Not not like every day, not unless under certain circumstances and because of the things that need to cause them. But once you unlock that that mystery, you can basically attain things that would seem like magic. One of them is being able to create a force field around yourself, and that it, uh, because the water is a liquid medium, uh, allows you to literally enter it at high speeds and slip effortlessly and frictionlessly through it so that whereas normally the speed of entrance would cause water to uh, to act more like concrete uh, you actually enter the water without even making a splash and you don't slow down because the water doesn't affect your engine your propulsion and yes you might not you know, be able to accelerate as quickly, but you can still attain speeds comparable to your atmospheric rate of travel. And, um, that's a fancy way of saying you can go fucking Mach 1 underwater. You can haul ass underwater, like jet speed levels underwater, if you have the right system and platform to do it. Uh, conveniently, the U.S. Navy... <laughs> makes a shitload of this stuff and all of it basically this is where exactly the US Navy has developed these technologies like the Tic Tac and stuff specifically because transmedium craft is their like number one secret like the ability to fly literal bombers into the ocean and then act like submarines and they fly those submarines out of the water and with anti-gravity and they they fly them like spaceships and shit like they don't want you to know that because that's how the solar warden operates. That's that's so that's so close to the truth that they have to keep the entire concept uh, uh, be above board. They have to keep it away from the public, and in all ways, it's an open secret. They completely admit it's possible, and they've researched it, but they'll say the research stopped at a point, and it did not. It did not stop. Like, they'll conventionally say that in the 60s, they were designing submarine planes, jets that were nuclear-powered, that could operate <laughs> in various different capacities, specifically as submarine, as submarine, as anti-submarine hunters, and they could use the hybrid methods of, uh, you know, like, actually spotting them from the high altitude... Uh, electronically harassing them and then diving into the water to pursue them. And, um, you know, that is, that's actually a lot more difficult physically than, for example, uh, building a spaceship or building a plane that can just go to space. To actually build a plane that can go into the fucking ocean that is exactly a crazier pill to swallow 
than saying they built a plane that can go to space. Like, they also have space planes, yes. The fact of transmedium aircraft, even a bigger secret, because it's a much more impressive task that they've accomplished. Like I said, once again, only made possible with these extra uh, super materials, with these cold fusion reactors, nuclear power is a big element into it. Um, things like anti-gravity, which can create a, a force field around yourself or control like an atmospheric pocket for your life support. Uh, basically keeping your pressure uh, kept, not through physical means, so you don't have to have a heavily armored uh, hull, but you actually just are using electrogravitics to keep your 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 pressure stabilized, which no amount of physical force could actually damage. People don't understand that. that le- like, gravitics and magnetics are much stronger than any kind of physical force including the crushing depths of water, magnets don't give a fuck. Magnets are magnets. <laughs> That's like, like magnets don't care where they're operating, depth of space, the middle of the sun, they don't care, they're magnets. And uh, they'll, they'll fucking, like I said, bottom of the ocean, magnets are going to magnet. And uh, because anti-gravity is basically magnetic, it's, you know, odd to think that the flying triangles and things that are, you see as UFOs or the Tic Tacs, or the flying cylinders, uh, can operate easily as well on the bottom of the ocean, because they they absolutely can, as they can in the depths of space, uh, you know, in the zero-G of space. That is absolutely the case. We're dealing with a physical principle, not of uh, conventional, like, you know, propulsion or anything, or conventional life support. We're, we're dealing with things that change the game absolutely change the game and then what's on uh, found and explained is just the conventional side of it so if they're willing to tell you all this stuff happened conventionally and there was no problem in its execution it was successful in every aspect of its engineering and its execution up to a certain point where it was quote unquote canceled after successful completion you know, design and everything, it was quote-unquote canceled. One only has to imagine that it's not canceled. It was just used and eventually made obsolete because of, you know, more successful technology or more radicalized technology. For example, um, the submarine aircraft carrier was only made obsolete with the invention of drones, with storm, storm drones. And then it was in the process of it becoming obsolete. They just converted it to become a drone-operating aircraft carrier for submarines. Also, that technology ended up creating boomers, which were the nuclear-powered ICBM submarines. But in the 50s, they were toying with the concept of... Uh, during War II and in the 50s, they were toying with the concept of aircraft carrier submarines, which they did build and did use in Antarctica just in a previous generation. The concept is sound, but what changed it was transmedium craft. You can actually fly the plane underwater now. And they just created the uh, more specialized nuclear attack boomer. So now getting into that, I definitely highly encourage everyone to go check out the uh, channel Found and Explained, which I'll be showing the, I'll be playing the audio to a little bit later on just to kind of summarize and wrap up all the different platforms. But I want to go on and read the anti-gravity uh, uh, segment that I have pulled up here. 
It explains the technology and the applications of the TR-3B, the anti-gravity craft, which is the most open secret in uh, U.S. you know aviation history. The military.com actually published a proof of it, a video and a article about it in 2013. So definitely would like like check that article out if I was uh, you guys. So let's see. Got to pull up my article here. Oh, yeah, so they refuse to acknowledge his existence for all intents and purposes, but military.com, which is an official big name in the military journalism scene, published an article in 2013 with accompanying videos. Uh, it's still on their website. It is not deep web or dark web. It is on their website and on the YouTube. So, free for you guys. All right, so turning your attention to the TR-3B Black Manta, a triangle-shaped anti-gravity plane around which there has been much speculation. So the question is on your lips, what is meant by anti-gravity, right? In the case of the TR-3B Black Manta, it means craft that uses highly pressurized mercury accelerated by nuclear energy so there's plasma produced in which turn creates a field of anti-gravity around the craft called an electromagnetic coil. At the heart, the motive power is results in the electromagnetic drive which interacts in the Higgs-Bison field in the quantum level. So pretty heavy stuff, right? It literally involves quantum mechanics rather than the actual, you know, conventional propulsion of force acting on other force. This is entering into 4D levels. uh, Complex term, simple, plasma. It generates a lot of plasma. It generates an entire force field of plasma around it. And when it operates, it looks and appears to be a sphere of light. This is heightened at night, you know, obviously when there's less light working on it. And this is when it's active. It can idle and hover using its natural natural anti-gravetic properties to basically become lighter than air. And it has no problem idling. But when it works and operates, it becomes its flash of light. It's able to move at relativistic speeds. Now, oftentimes tracked in hyper... Uh, uh, hyper uh, sonic envi- uh, you know, movement speeds, that's actually only a fraction of its true speed, although it does reserve its true speed, its, its ceiling, for off-world travel, specifically because there's a lot of negative physical interactions with the atmosphere and environment. Uh, when it does travel that fast, it, uh, in the Earth's atmosphere, causes this huge chain reaction and so it only really reserves its true, uh, you know, speed capabilities. Even though it itself is not a major traveling platform, uh, the engine itself, uh, strangely, has no limit for its performance but based on size. And the acceleration factor is really the only limitation or uh, of the performance of an anti-gravity plasma engine in, in zero-G, in, in the void of space. Meaning that if you had one engine that's the size of a suitcase, right? And you call that version A. And then you had, like, a version B that was ten times as big with ten times the power output and ten times the power generation, like, load. Uh, and used uh, version A, hypothetically, in two different ships. One being one size and the other being ten times the size. 
and use the ship, uh, use the version B engine on both hypothetical ships, that both engines, regardless of the size, would ultimately reach the same speed. It would just take the smaller, weaker one much longer to do so. But ultimately, they would reach near light speed, near relativistic speeds. Um, in fact, this is com- this is actually controllable, and like you can be multiplied to actually exceeding the speed of light, not necessarily through the anti gravity engines alone, but through other additional means. It can be, um, you know, it's not a bad place to start. It's not a bad start if you're trying to. Uh, you know, do the impossible and and break the speed of light, break relativistic uh, speeds. But this is how it's done. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So anti gravity, if you think that's science fiction, uh, has been actually proven at, to be researched and and still a research subject for NASA, the American Institute of Physics, the American Institute of Aeronautics and astronautics, as well as the United States Air Force and its research laboratories, as well as the Navy and its research laboratories. Uh, originally theorized by Albert Einstein, who came up with this uh, theory of relativity, uh, relativity, it is not a new concept. It is actually uh, has its origins militarily in Nazi Germany, or the Third Reich. Uh, with Operation Paperclip, it is rumored that we obtain this knowledge through the acquisition of their sciences through their program and their dark fleet known as Diglocko. Okay, anti-gravity is such a huge interest in the military and scientists like given that, for example, one could hypothetically reduce an aircraft's mass by using electromagnetic propulsion even down to zero. Little wonder that likes of NASA, U.S. Air Force, uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, Convair Air, Rockwell Air, like uh, now Douglas, Boeing, all the major companies, all the major names, the United States, Russia, France, England, etc., uh, Japan, China, all are hunting this holy grail known as anti-gravity. And remember, we're talking specifically the engine, not relating to the shape or the stealthy aspects of the ship around it or any advanced weaponry the ship might have or any aviation, just purely the engine itself. And that engine put into any airframe will reduce its density to zero, reduce its weight to zero. So basically, think of that. Okay, so it would use conventional thrusters, basically looking at the tips of the aircraft, which is where the lights on the three triangles that oftentimes people see. Those are literally uh, coils just to create heat to actually change the uh, the tilt and lift and everything around. Like, it's basically direct it and steer it. Uh, allowing it to create the high-speed rapid maneuvers and the hyper-acceleration that it's been known to use. The anti-gravity engine reducing its density allows it to move without experiencing any G-forces, thus allowing it to perform its literally 90-degree angles and uh, you know reversals of the speed and momentum, etc. Basically, though, it also runs silently, making it a perfect uh, spy plane and reconnaissance plane for both urban areas and um, high-altitude areas. Giving, uh, you know, its possessor complete air supremacy, uh, but also at the same time uh, providing extremely 
uh, minimally intrusive environmental type impacts. It doesn't use fuel, create pollution, etc. It runs basically a clean energy. I know that sounds weird to include, but it does. The history of the TR-3B involves the American Southwest, specifically the Mojave Desert in California, as well as uh, Nevada, etc. They're basically the testing platforms that birth all these craft. Um, this is where the sightings like the Phoenix Lights, etc. came from, meaning that the anti-gravity technology is most specifically is that which powers the UAP phenomenon that's been commonly and most popularly associated with modern-day UFOs. The Black Triangle. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is a simple investigative step of deduction. Anti-gravity has been talked about in popular mechanics. And articles like The Flying Stuff is Real, The New Area 51, and Roswell Files, When UFOs Land. They've been reported by military personnel around the world who were not connected with it, but reported as UFO phenomenon. They have been reported as operated by black ops in both the CIA, the United States Navy, and the Air Force. Um, you know, and it's, it's not... Uh, it's not uh, anything more wild to think about the stealth bomber or the Blackbird or the U2 project or the Manhattan project to think that projects can work coexist together simultaneously in, say, for example, you know, time and not be aware of each other. So you could be on Air 51 working on a SR 71 Blackbird, see a black triangle, not know what it is, not be told what it is, and assume it's UFO technology or reverse engineered technology. Which it actually is. It's a hybrid of such, and it's technology which is alien, foreign to you and to your society, being, you know, a, a member of the American society. What I think created the uh, Black Manta uh, frame of it, the Black Triangle, the actual blackness of it, I believe that's material, a hull, an airframe, a fuselage, if you were, of Orion Draco technology, specifically fighters and uh, transport craft, with its uh, signature design being copied and reproduced later, specifically in the development of like the F-117 uh, Nighthawk or the B-2 stealth bomber. These organic and, and rather alien uh, format, or at least lines. Um, have very little to do with aerodynamics, but they have a lot to do with really um, um, the the composite materials that are created. And like, for example, it's the material and the angles of the material that create the stealth effect, not the uh, any one like piece of technology on the plane itself. The technology of the plane itself. That's what creates stealth technology. That is why they look like black triangles. That is why they are created the way they do. It's the same logic. They could look like anything or be designed like anything. Like, uh, be, the same technology could be applied with, like, helicopter rotors. Uh, the same technology could be applied with, uh, you know, a, a conventional uh, cylindrical fuselage or a jet fighter's more uh, predatory-like angles. The stealth effect would be reduced, obviously, but the effect of the anti-gravity engine would not. It would still be able to reach the speeds. It would still be able to perform the high-G maneuvers, the high-inertia maneuvers, and it would still be able to run efficiently and silently. Now, 
this technology obviously is being kept top secret because of the applications for warfare, etc. But I think it's also being kept top secret because they are still unable to profit from it, very simply put. But I also think in this 21st century, when the public is made aware of this technology through the various enterprises uh, that channel this kind of stuff, uh, you know, your various uh, high designer, like elite technologies, anti-gravity will be first used to create what we know as like a new industrial revolution, a new bubble where flying cars and literal uh, anti-gravity conversion kits are being, you know, the, the most valuable uh, piece of technology in the world for at least a, a small amount of time as people desperately seek to implement and convert all the previous engines with these anti-gravity engines. And remember, the whole point is that while the technology is incredibly beneficial or useful when it comes to weaponry, it makes the platform extremely safe to operate. It makes the platform extremely light, you know, where it doesn't crash. It, it can just idle, you know, endlessly. It operates without eating fuel. It's not explosive. It's, um, you know, it's ironically both the deadliest weapon probably ever created and the safest to ever operate. And that is where the civilian application will come in. Because unlike jet engines, which can flame out, which have hundreds of thousands of moving parts, which rely on pretty uh, caveman, air, primitive physics of simply forcing air at speed across a wing panel or a wing manifold, um, that is like... You know, exactly. Like This is going to be something that helps out mankind because it might potentially end the phenomenon known as um, plane crashes or it might end or create a new wave of personal travel that that is, you know, second to only the jet set age when it came to the like uh, the availability of literal uh, never before experienced luxury such as flying across the world in, you know, private jets and things like that. That is uh, very much a part of the 20th century's identity. You know, so hopefully the 21st century identity will be anti-gravity personal planes, anti-gravity uh, lighter-than-air vehicles, things like that, um, anti-gravity personal vehicles. And the world would mature and be able to use these and monitor their existence, etc., safely. Uh, because never before has something been made available which could be operated as safely. Not even the conventional mechanical uh, car, not even the conventional gasoline engine or anything like that is is as safe as the electrogravitics available through the anti-gravity drive, the, the, the accelerated red mercury drive. Okay, so the patent that was been taken out on the aircraft design that's rightfully is officially in writing, uh, or issued to the United States Patent Office or the USPO, and to the United States Navy, collectively known as the anti-gravity patents. These were patents given to the Navy for what looked like a triangular-shaped aircraft akin to a UFO. The alien craft of law, the alleged innovator, is an elusive man no known as Salvador Caesar Powers. 
an American aerospace engineer, and inventor who works for the U.S. Air Force as late as 1991, received a Ph.D. and wrote a thesis in case of a Western University was titled A Bubble Generation Under Reduced Gravity Conditions for both co-flow and cross-flow configurations. So Pace clearly has the background. Right? So the, the background obviously exists. The powers, the, the creators obviously knows what he was doing. The PhD thesis exists. The patents exist. The United States Patent Office approved it. The United States Navy admits they received it. And one of the patents was issued on December 4th, 2018, entitled Craft Using an Inertia Mass Reduction Device, which is I was talking about the engine. We're just talking about the engine when it comes to the anti-gravity TR-3B is the platform built around the, gra- uh, the engine, which is the anti-gravity device, which is what we're talking about now. A... <laughs> A hold on one second, let me go back. It was a craft using an inertial mass reduction device. Any craft can use this device. It can replace any engine. It can re- it can just be used alongside any engine. It can be used uh, as a hybrid type power source, but it's it's just a device which can be installed and operates across the entirety of whatever it's installed in. Uh, technically and theoretically, you could put this in a train, and the train would be affected by anti gravity, uh, anti gravity, and high, uh, you know, this 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 uh, this gravity defiance, you know, using high voltage electricity and uh, flux mercury drives and stuff, creating a density close to zero. And the patent exists to be looked up. It's an abstract, but it exists with the the working operations and, and, and blueprint figure schematics. Highly recommend looking that up. It exists, U.S. Patent Office, for craft using inertial mass reduction device. Patent December twenty fourth, two thousand eighteen. Its abstract states that the patents for following a craft using an inertia mass reduction device comprised of an inner resident cavity wall and outer resident cavity and microwave emitters that electrically charged outer resident cavity wall and the electrically insulated inner resident cavity wall forms a resident cavity microwave cr- emitting electromagnetic waves through the resident cavity, causing the resident cavity to vibrate in an accelerated mode and create a local polarized vacuum outside of the outside resident cavity. The patent essentially describes anti-gravity aircraft and its diagrams as attached clearly show a sharp-looking triangular-shaped aircraft uncannily like an archetypical UFO. Now, that may not have meant a lot to you guys, because that's all electrical engineering speak. That's all high esoteric engineering advanced level stuff. This is why I'm saying it's that literally it's a breakaway civilization. Literally they use the same language but mean 
things that they only understand, that they can only visualize. It doesn't do it justice simply, and I could spend literal days and days speaking about these concepts in ways that try to explain it, but it doesn't do it justice unless you actually see it and maybe even research it or watch videos on it, however you learn best. But I hope you've taken the ride, you know, and seen at least up until this point that each aircraft that's mentioned has engineering and technology as advanced as this level of technology converted into it by this time in history. And this is after three hours of speaking about it, that even though these aircraft that I was mentioning were created in the Cold War, most of them, with the technology that exists, such as the reduced mass electromagnetic device, installed inside the platform, the effect of weight... Fuel, uh, you know, um, et cetera, cost, um, all of that become like safety, uh, all of that becomes new. It changes. It, it, the rules no longer apply. It's a new ball game at that point. And that's exactly what it all adds up to is that ultimately now the things that limited for example, a nation like China, in which it had to develop and then design and play catch-up with the powers of the United States and Russia, who had already developed this technology um, and had been allowed to develop that technology through extraterrestrial, exopolitical, uh, favoritism, etc., that now they are being able, now they are given this technology and they are given the ability to create it. They're given the factory, the blueprints, everything, the, the algorithms, how to work with it, all of it. And that they will be using it not only to help out all of mankind um, with the exploration of the hollow earth, etc., but also to help out, you know, bring disclosure, bring the information forward. Because these inventions could help the world out, could literally save the world. Definitely change the world for the better. But they are wrapped up in so much security at this point. Unfortunately, kind of like a lesser of two evils situation between the Soviet Union and America, that it would take a literal act of God to release that information without the entire system collapsing on itself because the system was built on the secrecy of this technology. The phenomenon of keeping something classified, of keeping something a matter of national security, of keeping something top secret and in military eyes only, is a phenomenon that only existed within the imperial context of the United States. And the United States, if without those secrets, would no longer be the dominant military power which it needs to be to even exist. The empire would literally have no clothes. Now, that's not to say that when the Chinese release the information that it'll be a war zone or it'll be a matter of war, it'll be this, this, this terrible thing. When that becomes revealed, then the pressure 
is off America's shoulders because no longer does it have, like, say, for example, a context for which to keep the secret. It would literally feel it would be the criminal being exposed for the crime of keeping it secret. But then once it can say that the technology was a part of a new arms race, a new Cold War, it's allowed to finally take the pressure off itself to reveal its own hand in terms of technology and then to allow the technology into its own world, its its civilian world, its commercial world, its secular world, allow it to be mainstream and thus allow it to affect the entire world. Every ship rises, you know, every ship floats on a rising tide. That's exactly what I was going to say. Once that happens, it's no longer a system of competition or of, of, of uh, supremacy. It's, this is a new era. And everyone in the world is going to enjoy anti-gravity technology. Everyone in the world is going to do this. No longer kept and reserved for the hollow earth and for the Antarctic uh, colonization efforts, etc. Which are currently using these technologies. And those efforts are only made possible with these technologies. Like I said, these supercarriers that can bring thousands of people in one time and one trip across uh, the Antarctic, you know, ice flows into like the regional tropical regions to set up camp with all the equipment, et cetera, and make it, you know, very streamlined and efficient. That's possible because those planes, the massive cargo planes that are bigger than any plane ever made, you know, besides the nuclear powered ones, but every plane in this category, which the video, the, the audio I'm going to uh, leave or in the podcast with will, you know, clearly state these planes are larger than any planes ever created. And that's only possible with anti-gravity, which makes them weightless, which makes them able to literally float. They all have vertical takeoff technology. Most of them have vertical takeoff and lift technology. That is because of the anti-gravity. They no longer compete with their own body weight simply to lift straight up off the deck. They just need the, the engines to direct them at the acceleration to actually get the speed and the force you know, to move. But they literally weigh zero. They have a weight of zero at that point. They can they can suffer high G's. They can move in and out. They literally can float on air. Um, the largest platforms like that featured in uh, the nuclear plane, the nuclear uh, tug, the nuclear uh, aircraft carrier, they weigh hundreds of thousands of tons. But they can literally fly and loiter like lighter-than-air vehicles. Most of these designs, because you're going to be hearing only audio are flying wing designs. Most of them are aircraft or or airliner designs that have been weaponized, are made extremely efficient. Specifically used, and they'll say those are canceled, those are specifically used in these lost lands and worlds, which the territories, the colonies, are hundreds of miles apart to ferry and traffic staff, personnel, technology, resources, cargo, weaponry, etc. They will use these airliners, like the 747, which is an extremely versatile airliner, which they make lighter than air with the anti-gravity device, which they include things like turboprops, etc., solar panel, hydrogen fuel cell, 
uh, what have you. They weaponize it if they need to. They consider it, you know, um, a, a platform to convert and specialize on. But all of it's possible with the anti-gravity. All of it's made extremely possible with the anti-gravity. It's not dangerous. It, it reduces the risk. It, redu- it increases the efficiency. It multiplies the force. Because the heavy lifting is done literally on a quantum level using plasma fields. Highly encourage you to research this as much as possible on your own. I said I could speak for three days on this subject straight. Um, I hope I covered the points I needed to in three hours. Um, I'll leave the audio for the YouTube channel found and explained. This video I pirated specifically, or this audio I pirated specifically, so he runs down the list of 40 of the largest canceled platforms, the most radical designed platforms. Uh, I believe that were never canceled. I believe they were currently and still are currently used in these lost continents in Antarctica and the frontier, using to explore things that will soon become public knowledge um, in the 21st century. And soon will become publicly visible as being invented and created by the Chinese as a cover story in the 21st century. I've been the Beyond Top Secret Texan. You've listened to the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. Thank you all very much. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. God bless you guys. God bless your families. Peace out. Never saw the light of day, and many have asked how they compare to each other. So why not chuck them into the mix and size them up together? Welcome to a very special video, the 100th video on this channel, and I hope you enjoy everything found and explained. We begin our tale with the smallest aircraft, the Bell X-22. A helicopter plane designed from the 90s, it had four ducted fans, could carry eight and fly vertically. But the military saw a better use for the design. Under heavy fire, this VTOL aircraft could have changed Navy operations, marine deployment, and through civil application, the way we commute around the world. Its ability to fly, compact design, and stable flight dubbed it the perfect blend of helicopter and plane. The next on their list is the Convair submersible seaplane, which does exactly what it sounds like it does. It has the ability to sink below the waves and hunt its prey. Submarines. That's right, this three-engine little plane that looks like it's from Tintin can take out nuclear-armed submarines. And it was seen as a simple solution to, to mutually assured destruction. The XB-35 and YB-49. Originally a World War II bomber concept, this flying wing aircraft would do away with the flaws of modern planes, such as long fuselage and perhaps still more advanced than many of today's plane designs. The original XB-35 could carry 20 machine guns and 52,000 pounds of explosives, and the later jet-powered version, the YB-49, would have been a contender against the B-36. 
Next, we have the Yak-38. The Yak-38 was an experimental Russian VTOL fighter jet design that would later influence the current Lockheed fighter jets still in use by the US Air Force. Expect a video on this little plane very soon. While technically not a plane, it was an aircraft on rails. The rail plane developed in Scotland would have brought high-speed railway travel to the world decades before its development elsewhere. Using twin propellers, one on each end, it glided softly above the ground and had ambition plans to reach as far as London, France and Egypt. The CL-346 was shockingly the idea to make a VTOL fighter jet as early back as in the 1950s. It could fly up to Mach 2.2 and deliver nuclear weapons, as well as land vertically in any environment. While many viewers might know of the SR-71 Blackbird, few know about its rival secret project, the Convair Kingfish, a spy plane that could fly in Mach 3.2 at over 90,000 feet. It was 73 feet long and had a wingspan of 60 feet and could fly faster and higher than the Blackbird, beat anything that the Russians threw at it and could even be used to deploy supersonic nuclear weapons. Perhaps the most controversial aircraft design on this list is the Avro Arrow. This was about to enter full production in Canada before being cancelled by the Canadian government. It has been remarked as the most superior bomber interceptor of its time, but with a price to match. From the creators of the A-10 Warthog comes the Fairchild Dornier. Seating 55 to 100 passengers, this German regional jet was the Airbus A220 of the 90s and was wider than the Embraer designs of the time. It could fit in more and fly further and was a contender to rival Boeing and Airbus. It was betrayed by its buyer and scrapped two days before its first flight. Next up, we have the SR-72. Currently under development as a replacement for the SR-71, this aircraft will change the way America spies throughout the world. It can apparently fly further and faster than the original spy jet, and most of its details have to be hush-hush. In the 1950s, the Iron Curtain East Germany developed an aircraft concept that was superior to Soviet designs, and it had such an impact that the West was even considering ordering a few. If it had gone ahead, it would have been a political triumph of the USSR and cemented the East German aviation industry for decades to come. Speaking of other commercial aviation designs is the Hawker Siddeley HS-141. This VTOL commercial plane could take off vertically and carry 100 passengers throughout Europe. It would have not only changed aircraft design, but radically changed how we design airports as well. Flying at Mach 6 above the world with donut-shaped rings, this spy plane only has the name Aurora and uses a new type of engine that doesn't yet exist, or what the CIA would have you to believe. Many have witnessed it, and to this day we don't know for sure if it's real. Ah, the Sea Master, a nuclear bomber that could land at any ocean and was the Navy's answer to the B-52. It was created to bridge the gap between covert operations and nuclear detonations until it was realised that missiles from submarines could do that role much better. 
The proposed Flying Dorito, or the TR-3B Black Manta, is a top-secret project that apparently doesn't exist and has been flying using anti-gravity technology. We only have rumours, but if such a plane did actually exist, you can bet that everyone would want to know all about it. What happens when you combine a missile and a submarine, you get the Convair nuclear-powered and nuclear-delivering ramjet. This plane, if you can even call it that, had the ability to fly past the sand barrier and then return back below the waves to hide out until the next attack. Dubbed the Mini 747, this plane had a top cabin for the flight crew and then a flexible lower cabin that could hold 87 passengers. It would have been a game changer for regional aviation and we can see that its cargo flexibility would have made it very interesting indeed. Using radical new engine technology, this Boeing design would change the Japanese market and then the world. And it almost got built, with prototypes flying and marketing wooing airline customers. Stick around because this technology would also come back in a big way later in this video. Some plane makers pause for thought. Its technology is a little bit more traditional, but perfect for Central Asian, African or other nations looking to cash in to super cheap air travel. And hey, don't forget to subscribe so far if you're enjoying this type of video. The Boeing 797 was designed as a middle-of-the-market aircraft to take on Airbus and be the replacement of the Boeing 757. But Boeing pulled the design in 2019 after the 737 MAX crisis. With six giant rotors, this Russian helicopter would have become the biggest helicopter ever designed. It was created to lift SAM missiles to remote parts of the forest to help shoot down American spy planes, and would actually go on to be a proposed platform as a helicarrier for the Yak-38. The forgotten Japanese 787-3 and the Airbus A350-800 were smaller equivalents of their current flagship designs that were created for high-density markets. The 787-3 turned into the Dash 9 version of the Dreamliner and the A350-800 would later become the A330neo. The Boeing 2707 was their version of the Concorde. It could carry 277 passengers and could fly further and faster than its European equivalent. But its technology was beyond the pocketbook of the United States and it was scrapped before it ever reached prototype phase. The second choice in the supersonic arms race was the Lockheed L-2000, a supersonic jet that was cheaper to build but not as technologically superior. Had it been built, likely America could have actually gotten this one to the market rather than the vaporware Boeing 2707. The Convair Model 37 was a design for a double-decker propeller plane near the end of World War II. Only a single military prototype was used during the Korean War, but engineers had long fantasized about a civil plane with its own two decks. I like to think that even though this project never went ahead, these same engineers would someday see the Airbus A380. 
The Boeing Sonic Cruiser was ushered in in 2001 and was able to fly faster than conventional aircraft of the time. Seen as a opposite move to the Airbus A380 in the market, going faster rather than carrying more passengers, this plane would eventually evolve into the 787, losing its speed advantage but maintaining its more fuel-efficient ethos. Now this project is one of the most scariest ever designs I've seen. A 747 that could not only carry one ICBM nuke inside of its fuselage, but six, and then launch them from the air whilst in flight. This terrible weapon of war was thankfully never developed, but credit is where credit is due as it shows off the power of the 747 platform. Speaking of power, we also need to consider the 747-500 prop fan version. A brief flirtation around the same time as the 7J7 was bringing the prop fan technology to the 747 design. It could fly further than most and was designed for flights between Sydney and London direct. Not to be caught out in the double-decker phase race, McDonnell Douglas designed their own double-decker A380 called the MT-12 just before the merger with Boeing. Its huge design was ahead of its time, but it would have gone the same way as the A380 and was a folly when the market was increasingly focused on smaller jets. Perhaps the MT-12 was a deck too far for McDonnell Douglas. The Boeing 747X double-decker was Boeing's version of the A380, and it could carry nearly a thousand passengers. This plane would have extended the hump of the 747 to the rear of the aircraft. The future of large cargo transportation is in question with the retirement of the 747 and only a single AN-225 in service. The world looks to Airbus and Boeing for potential large cargo designs for civil and military use. And this is what the hypercargo concept model is, a six-engined, powerful plane for transporting the world's largest freight. Based off the Valkyria bomber, the Draco concept is a passenger plane that could allow for faster flights and incredible journey times, perhaps one day changing what we think of a plane when we see it. And while technically not a plane, the Icarus rocket design could deliver hundreds of marines anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. A real-life halo drop pod, if you would. The American Akrana plan was developed as part of a strategic nuclear weapon platform able to move over water quickly to remote locations before launching its nuclear payload. This plane would have been able to strike fast and brought terror to the enemy who couldn't find them rising above the waves. Before the A380, Lockheed came up with the idea for a large, fat design of a plane that would be the perfect large capacity aircraft for long-haul flights. It had double decks and was so large that it would require the entire might of Lockheed, Boeing and Airbus to come together to build it, but it would be capable of carrying well over a thousand passengers. Airbus wasn't quite done with the Airbus A380 and had several different plans to build a cargo version, a stretch of up to a thousand passengers, and a more economical version. Had the series sold more, who knows where it could have actually gone. 
And believe it or not, there was also a plan to turn the C5 Galaxy into a passenger plane, and passengers would have been able to take their cars with them as cargo. Alas, we will only ever know the military version of this aircraft. A huge triple-deck monster plane, this concept was designed to see how many passengers we could fit on board a conventional aircraft. The answer, you will need to actually watch the video to find out. It had three levels of seating and six engines and would be used on routes such as New York to London. To London, it was also realised that at cruise speed, planes would waste fuel. Why not drag them instead with a nuclear-powered tug plane? The Lockheed nuclear tug had a range of applications, and only technology at the time limited its concept. Part of the plan to build 80 solar power plants in orbit, the Starraker was a space plane that could do weekly trips into outer space. It was huge and had a carrying capacity to boot, and could have ushered in a new age of space exploration. A slight footnote here that NASA also designed a shuttle bus that could carry up to 70 to 80 astronauts on board to work on board these giant space stations. Not to be left out in the cold, Russia also came up with its own supermassive flying concept, the TU-404 Flying Wing. It could carry thousands of passengers and had movie theatres, galleries and restaurants and more. It was a flying monster plane and, seriously, go check out the video. Speaking of flying monsters, the Boeing Pelican was designed to solve the cargo problem and allow armies to be transported across oceans in a matter of hours, not months. It was so big that it could carry an entire army battalion at once and completely dwarfed many other aircraft on this list. In the 1970s, when the oil was cheap and in high demand, Boeing came up with the idea of a flying oil tanker to reach deep within Alaska and bring back the fruits of its labours. This colossal plane floated with a hydrogen fuel tank and would have had the second biggest wingspan ever designed. But none of these planes hold a candle for what comes next. Ah yes, the biggest plane never built. You knew that this would be the top of the list, and I thank you for waiting for it. The CL-1201 was a flying aircraft carrier built in the mind of a world where the entire US military could be projected at once. There was an Air Force version with jets under the wings, and an Army version that could carry more troops than you can count. There might have also been a stealth version built, but perhaps that's a story for a future video. Very special.